You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Raleigh Tyler is an FX man, the movie's master of make-believe. He can show you a thousand ways to die. Hey, God, God! Great special effects. But now somebody wants Raleigh Tyler to do it for real. We want to stage a fake assassination, Raleigh, and we want you to supervise it. Who's the we? Justice Department. I'm a special effects man. I deal in make-believe. I'd like to keep it like that. We just thought that we might be able to utilize your particular genius to help us out. And what if someone takes a shot at me? You are 100% protected. I give you my word. That job that guy wanted me to do, I think I'll do it. But someone else is writing the script and casting him as the killer. You haven't done anything. What if he put in real bullets? If one person, one person suspects. Sorry, Raleigh, no loose ends. This is up to something. He tried to kill me. You go directly to the newspapers. What makes you think they believe me? I believe you. My name is Leo. We need to talk. Where the hell are you, Tyler? He's going to need every trick from every movie he's ever made. Remember my particular genius. Just to get even. And get out alive. I'm in pursuit of a blue step van. Letters on the side. X as in Frank. X as in X-ray. Remember Skidball Express? I sure do. Leo! Son of a gun, you faked this hot. But Raleigh Tyler's most special effects are yet to come. Forget why you hired me. What next? At the next corner, send Nelly in. Oh my God, what? Is he the weapon? Or the victim? Is it murder? Or is it... FX? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. Thanks for having me. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Adam Shartoff. Good on you, mates. This week we're discussing FX, also known sometimes as FX, Murder by Illusion. It's the story of Raleigh Taylor, a movie special effects man, FX, you get it, who is hired by two government agents to stage the public assassination of a mob boss who's turned state's evidence. What better way to keep the mob off his tail than by, quote-unquote, killing him? But things don't necessarily turn out as easy as that. Now, we're going to be getting to spoilers galore for this movie, so if you haven't seen FX or its sequel, or the TV show, maybe we'll touch on that as well. You have been warned. So, Jedediah, when was the first time you saw FX, and what did you think? You know, it's one of those films that seems like it was always on TV for a brief period of time when I lived in uh, Denver. It came out the year I moved to Denver, 86, and then uh, the sequel came out in 91, and I moved away from Denver in 92. So I... FX to me is all about my time in Denver. I, it just seems like something I was very aware of, but I honestly cannot tell you when the first time I actually saw the movie all the way through because I feel like I I was very very aware of it uh, because of the the trailers. It looked really cool to me. I don't know when I actually saw it start to finish though, but I, I've seen it 
several times in the last couple of decades. How about you, Adam? Of course, I was living down in Melbourne. I was playing at the local theatre, I believe. And uh, I went down with my mates, and we had a few uh, lagers, and then we uh, sat through, uh, I think we sat through it twice. We liked it so much. All right, that's a complete lie. I'm not even Australian. I thought you were going to, like, bring it up, that I'm a New Yorker. What? That you're a New Yorker? Yeah, that I'm not from Australia. I, I could have kept going. <laughs> I would have gone through the entire episode. I, the, was, I was wondering where this bit was going. <laughs> I would have taken it right to the bloody end, mate. Telling the truth, when was the first time you saw it? And what did you think? Yes, I want the truth. Uh, well, it doesn't really make sense with the age we're living in, but I will go for the truth. I saw it when it came out in the movie theaters, of course. It was a huge, huge hit. It was a hit movie. It was one of the biggest movies of the year. And uh, we all went to see FX. So I, I saw it, I saw it probably in in I'm trying to think probably somewhere in Queens where I was growing. I was already an adult, but I'm just assuming I saw it there. Or I might see it in Manhattan, but I know I saw it in the movie theater when it came out. I don't think I saw this one in theaters. I think this was a VHS rental for me. It was kind of along the lines. I also associate this with Highlander, where it was one of those movies where I just kind of heard about and then rented it on VHS, or maybe my folks even rented it, and I was really impressed and i rewatched this one again last year and i was again completely impressed with it i know along the way i'd seen the sequel i had never seen the tv show i kind of knew that that existed but the tv show was released 10 years after the original movie and the sequel was released five years after the original movie so yeah i was there for the sequel but not necessarily anything else i think the show was coming out maybe even after I graduated from college. But yeah, I was finding this as refreshing, as fresh these days as it was when it came out. And it's kind of nice because we're talking all practical effects here, folks. This is not digital stuff going on, and it looks fantastic. Yeah, in a, a movie called FX, it's all about movie effects. you, you got to hire somebody who's going to do, do a good job in that department. Yeah, all the squibs, everything. And they start off with a really nice fake-out moment where we're going into this restaurant and this faceless guy comes in and starts shooting up the place. And there's this woman who's begging for her life. And it seems like she's maybe a mob mall who uh, has run out on this guy. And then we find out that it's all just an act after this very involved sequence, let's say, where there's no way we're watching just one camera. This had to have been shot over a period of several days, but we're just going to pretend that this is all being shot in one day. That's okay. We can buy into that. And there's a lot of moments in this movie where you just kind of have to go with it and assume that this stuff can be done. I'm sure that those wonderful, intelligent, and highly professional people at that YouTube channel, Everything Wrong With, would love to have the uh, wherewithal to go through this film and point out all of the quote-unquote movie mistakes. But we're just going to go with it when we watch this movie and, and kind of enjoy it for that reason. Yeah, that uh, I will say the lobsters were real. In that, you know, I, well, you haven't said it was a, it was a, they were shooting a movie scene, but... Uh, but uh, the opening sequence of FX, but but uh, in that sequence, uh, which takes place in a, I'm assuming a seafood restaurant. I don't remember. Do you remember the name of the the restaurant? Was it an Italian restaurant or something? Anyway, they they shot up all the. Of course, there are uh, these very big uh, lobster aquarium tanks, right? And I remember, and I remember seeing even as they call cut, 
you know, on that scene and they had shot up the whole room and everybody's dead and they're all lying on the floor in a big, huge puddle of water because, of course, these tanks have were also shot. Right. And the glass broke and there were lobsters crawling around. Do you, 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 if you're not careful, you'll miss it. But I've seen the movie now a few times. I was impressed. I hope no lobsters were hurt in the making of this film. They pulled out all the stops for that. It was like uh, they first they lit the guy on fire and then uh, uh, and then they did all the squibs and the gunshots and then, yeah, bursting all the aquariums everywhere. It was like all the stuff uh, that we want to do in an FX movie, we're going to we're just going to get this stuff out of the way because it won't necessarily come up later in the film. I have to say, I was confused rewatching it again recently, and the opening music that happens, the Bill Conti score, I thought maybe I was going to be watching like a sequel to RoboCop because the music and the way that the FX logo comes on screen and it's all like polished metal and stuff, it totally reminded me of the beginning of RoboCop. We are thrown into this situation, thrown into this world. We're introduced to Raleigh. We're introduced to his assistant, Andy, who is a woman. We're introduced to his girlfriend or this actress who's – she's a strange character because I can never really get a bead on her. And it sounds like she plays the field. It sounds like she's actually going out with three people all at once, and Raleigh is just one of them. So it's a little tough. She ends up, of course, she's a dead mate. She ends up dying in this, and it's supposed to have a real impact on Raleigh, and it's really supposed to motivate him. But I don't necessarily see it motivating him that much, because they, even though we can assume that they've had sex and that they've spent a lot of time together. I mean, she's very predatory as far as when he gets introduced to this idea of doing this government hit, which we'll talk about in a moment. The first thing out of her mouth is, is there a part in it for me? Thinking that it's a movie gig, but you know, she's all about uh, advancing her career. So an actor, in other words. When Raleigh talks to her about, uh, would you take a gig on a movie that uh, they went with... Uh you know, my rival on, and she said, yeah, you never ask an actress that. Of course I would. The gig that he's been hired to do, he's been tricked already by Clifty Young, who shows up on set and introduces himself as this character Lightner. And then pretty much the second time we see him, he admits right off the bat, no, my name's not Lightner, it's Lipton. I work for the government and I want to have you on this gig. And he really endears himself to Raleigh by appealing to his ego and going around the entire room and naming off where all of these props are from. He's definitely a movie fan and knows his stuff, which is great. And I love all of these titles. Some of them are real, like I Dismember Mama, which seems to be the most popular one. And then some of them are fake. I always love fake movie titles in movies, and especially when they maybe make nods to real movies. And it kind of reminds me of when Travolta is talking with his friend in Blowout, and they're going through all of those things. And they mention like Bordello of Blood, which then ends up being a real movie later on, but just those all those fake horror movie titles. And there's a lot of blowout in this to me as far as the behind the scenes of movie making and i think that's one of the reasons why this movie appeals to me so much it's definitely a movie uh made by 
movie fans for movie fans. I love all the titles of those movies. I had no idea. I dismember Mama was a movie. You said that that's a real film. I that's I a real that. movie. A double explosion of bloody terror, blood spattered bride, and I dismember Mama. I did not know that, but I love all the uh, all the play with those titles, all the uh, alliteration, Vermin from Venus, Song of the Succubus, Blood in the Basement, stuff like that, and then the uh, the very awkwardly titled Planet of the Female Mummies. Uh, <laughs> Those, uh, I love all those titles, and there's posters all over Raleigh's wall too. Uh, uh, zombie, Fulci's zombie, and there's Lon Chaney as Wolfman, and, and a Rene Claire, uh July 14th movie, and yeah, just very cool stuff for nerds in there. If listeners are going to watch it for the first time, well, they should certainly know that we're there's this is full of spoilers for sure. But also, they should go into seeing it. They should absolutely see effects because it has a lot of charm. But they should also know that they, if you're going to see it, you have to buy in to this very much less uh, sophisticated idea of what special effects are. That you're going back to an entirely different time, and that once you accept that, you can have a really good time watching the movie. And you won't get like put off or annoyed by just how, s- by today's standards, some of these things look rather crude or simplistic, you know. But they, anyway, I think it's worth mentioning that. You're not going to see a lot of digital effects in this, and you're not going to see digital blood, which is also nice. The idea of effects play out in um, Raleigh and Andy's relationship, where they're constantly kind of playing practical jokes on each other. You know, she's got a cigar box she wants him to open because it's going to blow white powder all over him you know and it, it's 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 not for a film it's just something they really enjoy doing and it's it, it's uh you know it's retaliation for him tying her feet together with a bathrobe sash uh when he's uh picking stuff up um and she's she's passed out so it, you get the idea that they just they do this stuff they just love to to play tricks on people and that's what uh that's why they do this job they just like playing tricks on people when I love that they have that shorthand too, like later on when they're saying like, well, remember that gig in, you know, this movie or that movie, and they'll just be able to use that shorthand and keep the audience unaware of what's happening, which is really nice. And they can speak to one another in code and just be able to know what the other one is talking about as far as these different, you know, explosions or makeup effects or different things that they're doing just because they have this long history of working together. And I like too that you know, it's a man and a woman, but they're not coupled up by the end, which is really nice that so many movies, it's like, okay, if you have a man and a woman, by the end of the movie, they better be together. But you know, actually, the real couple at the end of this movie is uh, Brian Dennehy and Brian Brown. The two Brians are the, it's a love story between the two Brians. So I've been going into a lot of detail about this opening gig, for lack of a better term, and this whole setup, because... The setup is what puts the rest of this movie in motion, but it's really nice that this setup, this murder that is happening, quote-unquote fake murder, it is the first act of the film. And then after that, the movie changes completely, and it becomes a man-on-the-run story. It becomes a man wrongfully accused of this crime that he was involved in, but was doing it fake-wise, and becomes this whole other thing. And then we're not even introduced. You know, I mentioned Brian Dennehy. We're not even introduced to his character until we're 40 some minutes into this movie. And we get maybe five minutes of screen time between Dennehy and Brown as this movie goes on. 
But really, it's it's very the, – the thing that I like about this movie so much is the structure of it and the way that they are both investigating the same thing at the same time, almost one following in the other one's footsteps or both coming to the same conclusions at the same time but through different means and solving this case. And there's this not necessarily rivalry going on. And, and the other thing that I like a lot too is that even though – Brian Brown, the Raleigh character, has committed this crime in air quotes. He murders uh, Jerry Orbach, who's this mob boss, whose name is Nicholas DeFranco. Even though he murders him in broad daylight or in public, and it repeats that whole opening scene that we saw of this murder in a restaurant. You got to quit talking about the lobsters, dude. Okay, I'm sorry. Where the f*** was I? He repeats this murder, and there's a lot to me in this murder. It reminds me a lot of The Godfather as far as that murder of Salazzo and and the police. I can't remember if he's a captain, but the the murder there that happens and that Michael Corleone does in the first Godfather film. Yeah, Raleigh even references that. He said, Michael Corleone went to Sicily. Where am I going to go? So, yeah, I mean, it was a very conscious nod. I want somebody good, and I mean very good to plant that gun. I don't want my brother coming out of that toilet with just his dick in his hands, all right? Talking about the Palma and, and blowout is 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 good. I, I do think uh, I hadn't thought about that, but I do think that that was probably a conscious nod. There's, like I said, it, it's made by movie fans for movie fans. Comparing Brian and Brian, I like that the uh, Brian uh, Brown is so you know a movie professional, and Brian Dennehy doesn't seem to like movies. His his. You know, when he comes into Raleigh's uh, workshop, his stuff is like, people pay money to look at this crap, you know, and his idea is uh, he likes Raleigh as a suspect for the murder right away because this guy's obviously obsessed with, you know, blood and violence and must be a sicko. I think that, that it's nice to uh, for people who like horror movies and, and violent stuff to see Brian Brown portrayed as, as such a cool, great guy who is obsessed with uh, blood and violence and, and things like that, making it appear like that because yeah, most of the horror fans I know are, are pretty cool people too. He probably listens to heavy metal music too. Probably. Mm-hmm. And it becomes clear that this is uh, no, this is a very specific genre that was very popular in the eighties, the action comedy, you know, the, unless I'm mistaken, we don't really see that very much anymore. And so we're not a really, or at least younger audiences may not even understand the tone. They may be expecting very different direction and very different types of things to happen in a movie like FX. Uh, but in that time period, there's this very specific genre where, you know, just because Diana Venora, who plays Ellen, right, the girlfriend that you talked about, the actress, she's knocked off and very violently, she's just killed. And then within a few scenes, it's like, He's moved on. You know, it's like that can happen in, I guess, this particular genre, but you wouldn't see it anywhere else, you know. And it's sort of, I have, I know you'll probably talk about FX2 later, but it, it, the same thing happens in that, in that movie. It's very, very uh, uh, odd, but, you know, you, you have to, again, you have to just sort of embrace and, and move on, you know, that, uh, this, uh, Diana Venora, who's this, you know, you're hoping she'll be in the whole movie because she's so great to look at and she's, she just sort of, uh, I think, uh, is great on camera and yet, uh, she's just summarily written out very early on. 
Yeah, this was the golden age of uh, buddy cop films and that whole idea of we're going to pair these two uneasy people together. You know, it's going to be the hard way or it'll be, you know, one of the few good jokes in The Last Action Hero is that whole thing of the the two different cops coming in. Like, you're going to be paired with a cartoon cat. You know, everybody has their weird partner and that's what we're going to do with this. And we do get that pairing. We do get that kind of buddy cop thing in FX2. And in this, it's kind of there, but not really. Like I said, we keep our two buddies who are going to be friends by the end of the movie apart from each other. And then they have their own partners with uh, Leo, the Brian Dennehy character. He actually has two partners. He's got both his computer friend. um, So I guess he's more into digital effects. And then he's got his cop partner and he's able to use both of those. And then Raleigh has Andy, but then at one point he abandons her and we never really see her again at all in the movie. Yeah, it almost seemed like they were playing towards uh, once you knock off Diane Venora, the the audience expectations were probably, oh, we're going to uh, get Raleigh and Andy together by the end of the film. And uh, and she definitely plays a big part in helping him. But uh, no, that, that never develops. And I, I wonder if, if that had been part of uh, the project at any time. The other thing that I wanted to say about Blowout is – what reminded me of Blowout as well is Jerry Orbach, the DeFranco character, his pacemaker, and the whole idea of we can't cross these wires on his chest for the squibs because he's got a pacemaker, which kind of amounts to nothing at the beginning of the, of the film, but then comes back later on. It reminds me of the undercover cop in Blowout who's getting electrocuted or like little shocks through the whole time because he's sweating, and Travolta hadn't taken into account for that, and that's what is the tragedy of, of blowout is that he ended up getting someone killed with his effects. And he then, you know, uh, uh, retreated into the world of schlocky movies. So that was the other thing that really kind of brought that out for me. Uh, did you notice in uh, the, the scene where Diane Venora is killed, uh, you know, Raleigh's got movie posters all over his walls. She's got ballet posters and like a Rolling Stones concert tour poster, the poster that's right over her bed is a, a picture of two two ballet dancers. Uh, one wearing uh, the the woman wearing white, and the the man you can hardly make out. He's just a dark figure in there, kind of wrapped. They're wrapped around each other. And the, uh, when Raleigh picks her up and puts her in the bed after she's been shot, she's wearing that white slip, and it looks it almost kind of mirrors that uh, that poster. And I just I really enjoyed looking at the all the background detail in this one. Another is that in that fight that he has with the sniper in, in her apartment, um, uh, her bookshelf is knocked over. And the one book that's like really visible is uh, called Defector by uh, Evelyn Anthony, who uh, who also wrote the Tamron Seed, which was made, you know, to the, the Blake Edwards movie with Julie Christie and, and Omar Sharif, you know, this espionage stuff. And so there's all this kind of very playful stuff going on in the background throughout throughout the movie. I, I really enjoyed those. Yeah, even some of the lines in the movie, you, know, you, you talked about how he re- references Mike Corleone, and there's another part where he says something like, it's it's nice work if you can get it, and I know that that's from another film as well, and it's like, it is so smart, and I have to say, not only is the writing smart, but it is so well-directed, and there are actual moments 
even though I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times, there are still moments where I forget what's going to happen and they pull the rug out from under me. And after however long it's been since this movie came out, 30 some years, that that can still happen. I was very impressed by. And then there's another thing which should be mentioned is the uh, how the New York locations uh, are used. It's almost surprising that they chose New York as where to film something that, you know, something you'd think like this would be done in, in L.A. or somewhere, you know, because they work in the movie business. Yet it's all set in, in New York. And there's it's not like they're theater actors. They're all ta- doing television and movies, it seems, you know. But I, I do like some of the uh, already, uh, even up to this point, there's a lot of on location uh scenes and also like the chase sequence that comes up later uh the uh the, you know those are all just very recognizable neighborhoods and from what i can tell they generally stick to the logistics of new york city i i guess of the three of us i'm i'm the new yorker but it's something i really noted that this movie went out of its way to do and i was kind of curious why they chose to shoot this in new york and maybe it's it's obvious but i i didn't didn't see it. Yeah, I'm not sure why they would have. And then I was kind of almost surprised when it came to the TV series when that was set in New York. And I was like, oh, were those other movies set in New York? I guess they were. I don't know why. I even recognized when they went to Central Park and they had the boats and everything, but it just didn't strike me as New York for whatever reason. Yeah, just because it, it didn't use New York as an homage to the city. It just used it like it was just any, it could have been Toronto, you know? I guess because we didn't have the fly in onto the island and we saw the two towers and the Statue of Liberty and all that. And then we get the establishing shot that we just kind of start right off with that restaurant after we get those opening credits. It would have made sense that this would have been shot probably in real life in, in either Los Angeles or some city like, like I said, Toronto or Montreal. But I'm glad it was there. And, you know, New York looks pretty great, I think, you know, and I, I did yeah. I did appreciate that big the big fun chase scene that comes up later. Uh, it was all done right. You know, on New York City, they closed down a lots of blocks for this movie. I think I have it. I think because there's no homeless people in any of those other cities and they needed that scene where they're with the homeless people and the way they come up onto Park Avenue. Oh, my God. There's such cliches, though, in this movie. <laughs> oh my God. Right out of central casting. Jesus. Well, you talked about how people are actors and, you know, this is it's all being set here. And I found the one thing very interesting is that the biggest actors in this movie are Cliff DeYoung and, um, why am I forgetting, the guy who's the voice of Smuckers, which whenever Mason I see Adams. him, uh, the, the guy that played... And he plays Mason. Yeah, Mason Adams as Colonel Mason. The way that those two are putting on a show, especially when they're putting on a show for Trey Wilson, the Lieutenant Murdoch character, and the, you know, after Murdoch leaves and, you know, we even hear like a final uh, line from off, you know, off stage, as it were, from, from Colonel Mason, and then a, do you think he bought it afterwards? It, it's nice that they're putting on such an act and they are, and then they're trying to act as well in front of, um, Brian Dennehy's character. And then Dennehy's the one, and this really is the turning point of the movie for me. Dennehy doesn't buy the act. And that's when the suspicion, his suspicion of Raleigh seems to be turned off. And then he really starts to suspect Mason and then starts to investigate that way rather than just being this mindless automaton going after Raleigh, he realizes what the truth is and starts to go after Mason and uncover things that way. 
uh, Mike, you were talking about how they were working two parallel, tr- they're working parallel tracks, right? The Brian Dennehy character and the Brian Brown character. In, um, they're sort of two teaming. And it seems like Brian Brown was working from the inside out and, and Brian Dennehy's character, Leo, is that his name? He was working from the outside yeah. and he was working from the outside in, you know? It's just a, an observation. Yeah, that kind of plays too to the whole idea of Raleigh when he's inside the, 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 the headquarters, even though he's actually not. And he's got those two phones taped together. So he's able to tell them. And it kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, the, I can't remember which horror movie it is, but it's the whole, the call is coming from inside the house. You know, <laughs> I was waiting for that moment. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. He's in the building for Christ's sakes. He's calling from a payphone in the lobby of this goddamn building. In the screenplay, there's more to this whole idea of Leo, he actually knows Mason and Lipton. And I'm glad that he doesn't really know them that much in this case and that he interacts more with this Murdoch character, this, this, uh, uh, intermediary and, um, you know, who I, I absolutely love the actor that played Murdoch, Trey Wilson, uh, especially from Raising Arizona and other films like that. But having him as that buffer, I thought was a good thing so that he's not actually interacting with Lipton and Mason the way that Murdoch is trying to take the credit for this or, or take the collar and that Leo knows DeFranco. And that's really his entree into this is that, you know, DeFranco is now dead, but he wants to find the guy's killer. So it's kind of a nice thing that Leo doesn't necessarily interact with those guys too much. And really I was trying to think of when the last time we see Lipton in is, and I think, is it, after they take him for a quote unquote test drive in his car and bash the shit out of him in that car. I want to say that was the last time. I don't know that he comes back after that. I don't think he does. I think because they just leave him in the trunk. <laughs> Jed, did that scene remind you of point blank at all? Yeah. Uh, and also uh, like Ryan O'Neill and the driver when he's uh, bashing the shit out of that, that car in the parking garage, he's stripping off the doors and, and crumpling the hell out of it. Yeah, I can see that. That was a nice, I mean, I don't know if that was a direct homage, but that was kind of a nice way to take care of Lipton and get the information about Mason out of him. Yeah, I kept thinking about uh, Brian Brown uh, in that ridiculous homeless makeup, uh, screaming at the trunk, you know, um, and just, I was wondering, yeah, Lipton's probably not, you know, uh, Cliff DeYoung probably isn't even on set, you know, and he's just getting fed his lines and, I don't know, it just seemed like a, must have been kind of a silly scene to shoot. <laughs> but I have to admit that the audio quality on that is good because it actually sounds like he's inside of a trunk. Maybe a little better than it might sound. I've never actually spoke to anyone in a trunk before, but... Oh, you ought to. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll try to do that. You don't have kids? All right. Well, you're talking about taking them to the drive-in movie, of course, I'm sure. That, get, that gives child, child rearing an all-new meaning. <laughs> I know we're going to hear a special effect on that on that joke on your show anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait, did the Central Park uh, scene where with the boat, you know, the the little toy, the the uh, remote control boats, has that happened yet in the timeline? I, I did see the movie. I just can't remember exactly. Yeah, we're kind of hopping around with this thing, but I just wanted to mention that one of the one of the henchmen is is the great character actor Tom Noonan, 
who's uh, the, he's he's in the the Central Park that Central Park scene, and you know where he's he's trying to capture Raleigh and Andy, um, or at least Raleigh, uh, or they're set up for a meeting or something, and he's supposed to take him in, I guess, right? Well, yeah, he had followed Andy. Uh, it seems like people are always following the women in this movie because I think that the woman that got killed already that she was followed, and then Andy ends up getting followed. Look, you're followed. We gotta lose it. Who? The tall one. But then they defeat Tom Noonan in a very A-team way by pushing him into the water. And of course, there's no way that he can get out of that and pursue them with any sort of speed. Well, he's soggy. I love watching and- him run, too. He's so, so tall. He's just kind of, he looks like he's going in slow motion. It, it didn't make much sense to uh, to knock him into the water. I mean, it was kind of cool to to have Andy distract him, you know, saying if you want to, you know, Raleigh's got a, he's got a gun pointed at your head. And if you want to talk to him, you signal him by putting this boat in the water. And, and uh, Brian Brown's just like watching him do this rather than getting a head start on running away. You know, he's, he's watching him go toward the water, watching him put the boat in the water. And then he sneaks up behind him and, pushes him in even though he can get right back out you know it's like yeah it's a good like 15 seconds almost of uh wasted head start you could have got you could have got there but and now and now tom noonan who by the way has done my podcast twice just thought i'd mention that as an aside is even angrier and more motivated to do harm so i don't know why you're right why would they do that yeah if memory serves that wasn't in the uh, I've read one of the drafts of the screenplay, and it was from Jan of 85. And I found it interesting. This movie, even though it came out in 86, it has an 85 copyright on it. So I wonder if it was delayed for a little bit after it was completed. Because normally, you know, it's unless it's coming out in January, you're going to see the same year on the film, generally, as the the year that it was made. But that seemed like they might have been still futzing with that scene uh, up until the very end. And maybe the solution wasn't the best, but you know, it's still nice to see Tom Noonan. And he comes back later on uh, when it's the gangsters or the bad guys are all playing cards. And I was like, okay, that's kind of nice that he's still around. He, he managed to survive that terrific fall into the pond. Well, he's also the guy yeah. who shoots the dude in the phone booth that they think is Raleigh. So... He's in around. He's around from the very beginning. But you know, you're probably right. He probably just actually the actor fell in the water, and they decided, you know what, we're gonna cover this up by uh, we're not gonna dry him off. We're just gonna we'll come back and reshoot him actually falling in, and it'll it'll play. That's probably what happened. It's so nice to see him show up in this, and then I was so thrilled to see uh, Roscoe Orman show up as the police chief. No kidding! Holy cow! That that always pulls me out. <laughs> is it his Sesame Street? Okay, I wondered if it was a Sesame Street connection or his Willie D connection. That's Sesame Street all the way. It was Gordon. And he's got the same mustache. I mean, he has a great look, but not going to change that up at all for, uh, you know, your two iconic performances, huh? <laughs> well, and then he gets to ask for the gun and badge, which, you know, that's one of my favorite montages of all time is when people take all those i need your gun and your badge statements and just put those all together please you know the rules give me your badge and your gun i want your badge and your gun your badge and gun officer i'll take your badge and i'll take your gun 
and I'll take your word that he'll no longer interfere with the investigation and be available for the hearing. Afraid I'll have to have your shield and your weapon. I'll take your shield and your peace. Give me your badge, and this time you won't get it back. And then I like the way that Leo just steals his badge back and the way that he's flipping it around in the car later on when we see him. Can we talk about uh, Brian Dennehy's uh, great Nick Nolte-ish uh, hungover wake-up introduction? Because the hungover wake-up introduction is a really great movie. I love those. And, you know, maybe the greatest ever is Nick Nolte in North Dallas 40, uh, which had come out just a few years before and was directed by Ted Kotcheff, who directed Dennehy in First Blood. And I think uh, maybe maybe Brian Dennehy uh, wanted to he wanted to do that because of uh, the I don't know this. That's just my feeling watching. it. I'm like, oh, man, this is his North Dallas 40 moment. Well, that was one of the nicest changes to the screenplay was Leo's introduced just a few minutes earlier. There's that you barely see it in the film now. It's a bunch of reporters in the hallway and they're talking about the death of DeFranco. And that's where he was introduced originally. And then he, you know, so it's like, what's going on with DeFranco? And he talks to Murdoch and he starts talking about what an asshole Lipton is. That's where I said that he knew who Lipton was. And them changing it to this like hungover wake up with his partner calling him was a really smart thing to do. Cause I agree. That's a great moment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always going to like a character who's introduced that way. I, I will feel a kinship with them. And man, I love Brian Dennehy and he plays this role so well. Yeah, I always Perfect. think he's kind of short and heavy cause he's oh, no. so barrel chested, but he's, he's a giant, isn't he? Yeah. He's over six feet tall and, and still just as broad. Yeah, he's like a mountain of a man. <laughs> and it was still that time where, you know, that was extreme, like almost like an, one of the uh, female ideals for a guy. He was so, you know, that was considered a, ma- a very masculine, look, you know, look. And he was, he was, you know, getting the women. Well, he liked, uh, you know, certainly it, it became even more so in the second movie where maybe he's a bit more of the, you know, upfront. But uh, those two actors, let's face it, you know, they each had their own hemisphere, and they they were both probably the, among the most charming of the in uh, the movies. You know, um, those two Bryans, they both exuded charm. So, and they, but they seemed to also really have a chemistry between them. Well, Dennehy was coming off of some big stuff at the moment. This was right after Cocoon and Silverado. And so he was just knocking him out of the park. Both of those movies were huge. Keep bringing up these very familiar tropes that, you know, like you say, the waking up hung o- hungover and the sort of the exasperated police chief, you know, the, you know, all these different re- very recognizable moments that we are so accustomed to. Is this one of those, this is like one of those movies that really established this. It's not just d- repeating what's been out there. I think like this was one of these real set an example and a lot of movies followed suit. Am I, am I wrong about that? Another one was, um, when Leo, Brian Dennehy would we'd be sitting next to, you know, Velez and looking over his shoulder all the time. And, you know, he's got his glasses on, his half, his reading glasses on. And she's obviously a computer whiz and, you know, the first DOS computers, right? You know, he has no idea what she's doing and she's typing away and we're watching multiple scenes of typing going on. And, you know, she, she's in the role that's usually 
given to like Annie Potts or or like Melanie Mayron, one of those kind of nerdy but cute, very cute women. Uh, I just I don't know. Maybe this was the first time you saw that, but it, we saw we certainly seen it a lot over the years. I was cracking up watching it uh, this week when uh, they're checking the uh, the social security numbers. Yeah, and uh, they've got two, and they want to check the third. And he's like. He says, Brian Denny says to, to her, can you bring it up on a split screen? And she says, no, I can't. And then a second later, she gets up and she goes, walks across the room to another computer and pulls it up over there so that she doesn't have to delete the information on the other screen. And Brian Denny, he's like, that's brilliant. I never would have thought of that. That's right. No, split screens come uh, are invented by the, our sequel, though. So just wait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or maybe that's another De Palma nod. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Get the split diopter going on with one computer yeah. screen in the foreground and one in the background. <laughs> and we do have to talk about the end of the film as far as we have seen Raleigh doing special effects a few times through this, and he seems to use that to get out of his situations. And the end of this film is just a tour de force of one gag after another, after another, after another. And it's really a nice thing that Raleigh, even though we've seen him use his fists in other fights, he uses his brains more than anything. And so much of this is our two main characters really being smarter than the criminals and outsmarting them every step of the way as they go through this. Yeah, he's like the most well-prepared, sought-out guy ever. He's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to electrocute one guy, and then I'm going to pop a explosive balloon in this guy's face, and then uh, surely... Uh, I don't know the layout of this house, but I'm going to do a mirror trick. I'm going to set myself with squibs and alien skin across my neck and my wrists so they can't feel a pulse so I can fake my own death. And Though we did see that skin at the very beginning when he was using that cigarette. Joy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is a nice thing. It's almost like the Q scene from a, a James Bond film, but we don't necessarily know that that's what's happening. Getting back to the for movie fans and enthusiasts, I, I think it's almost like a procedural on how you create special effects watching him make the Jerry Orbach mask and, um, and things like that. You know, it was very involved. If if that weren't what the point of the movie was, I don't think they'd, I don't think they would have spent that much time on it, but I, I think it was very much, you know, it's just show how, how you do this kind of stuff, uh, sort of behind the, uh, magician secrets. I think also we were coming off of a time from the late 70s, let's say mid to late 70s, where science fiction and fantasy films were back, you know, in full force. And so this kind of comes off of that time where there was a, a real interest in how are these special effects being done. And like all of a sudden there are popular magazines and uh, being, you know, Read and people are interested in getting behind more behind the scenes um, than ever. So I think this is probably was a result of that. Right. By this time, you know who Tom Savini is. You know who Rob Bottin is. You know who Stan Winston is. You know, you're getting these guys who are becoming, I can't say super popular, but people actually know them and they're seeing the behind the scenes of the transformation in American Werewolf in London. That becomes the special, you know, how did we tr change David into a werewolf or, you know, I know the, the thing was a, a bomb when it came out, but people are still interested in how were these effects done? 
I just wanted to respond to what you guys were talking about, that the, the ultimate, you know, the big f- final uh, piece where, you know, I think it was really uh, entertaining and that um, was very well paced. And um, again, though, the, 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 that idea of the last, part of this adventure or action film takes place in a mansion somewhere. And the, you know, the, how many times have we seen that since? Well, I was going to say that he knows the layout of this house so well, because I think he saw Beverly Hills cop and he studied where Victor Maitland lived. <laughs> was that the same house? I don't well think it been. was, but yeah, may as well. Right, have been. Exactly. <laughs> and they do it again in FX too, but I don't mean to jump the gun. It's exact same. <laughs> it's exact same movie. And it's nice that they introduce this whole, I can't say it's a MacGuffin at the end, but this whole idea of the $15 million that comes out of nowhere towards the end of this movie. And suddenly that becomes this motivating factor. And DeFranco, like, I'll give you a million dollars if you kill this guy. And the whole idea of him and Mason having this rivalry, because, you know, spoilers, DeFranco is still alive. And I think that when they reveal that DeFranco is still alive is the perfect place to reveal it. And then him being kind of a dick to Mason and their rivalry that they have towards the end is really nice as well. And yeah, suddenly we have this, this $15 million bag up in the, up for grabs. And that becomes the motivating force for Mason to just kind of fuck over to Franco, you know, <laughs> like rather than getting him help, he's, you know, give me the key, you know, throw me the whip, I'll th- throw the, throw you the idol kind of a thing. And, Yes. Adios. I'm going to take off now and you'll never see me again. And it was pretty clever, too. The whole idea of Rolly super gluing the machine gun (laughs) into Mason's hands, which also felt like that was from another movie as far as sending somebody out with a gun so that they don't know. I guess it kind of reminded me a little bit of the end of them with the way that they get rid of Eddie Mars. But I know that I've seen that kind of gag before where they'll just send somebody out with a gun and uh, it trying to explain and then the you know it's it's death by cop in that instance why didn't brian brown's career just skyrocket after this i mean i think he's an incredibly charming charismatic performer who's both believable as a tough guy but he's also really funny he's obviously good looking i mean god that scene in with him in the tidy whitey how is that not his you know tom cruise moment i don't well, that's it. I think he ended up doing cocktail and that kind of put the kibosh on it. And, you know, we already had one Paul Hogan. We can't have another Australian guy running around. This is before Australians kind of took over the industry and you're just like, get surprised when you watch no, them Gibson, at award shows. Quasi. Yeah. And you're just like, that guy's British. That guy's Australian. When the fuck? Who's this guy? Russell Crowe's Australian. But no, and I think there's a nice nod to cocktail in uh, FX too, which is a really nice thing. Is there? What was that? That was uh, Leo at one point. It has a... Um, uh, oh, he's got the bar. Right. Yep. And he's right. and he's got the thing, and he's trying to flip the, 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 the drink thing. Look at this. I really got it. Uh, almost got it. You're wasting your time. That thing hasn't worked in five years. Yeah, they should have put the hippie, hippie shake on the uh, sound box. Yeah, that was real nice. <laughs> that's good. I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's, that's probably right on, yeah. So, yeah, and then, like I said, we get one moment where Leo comes in and addresses Rowley's quote-unquote dead body. 
Leo again is smarter than the average bear and figures out that Raleigh isn't dead and is right there waiting for Raleigh when he unzips himself from a body bag and is escaping from the morgue. And then we have the last few minutes of these two together. I can't remember if they actually say the word. This looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship, but they might as well, right? Well, it looks like they're going to go have a romantic uh, getaway in the Alps. Right. (laughs) And those goofy, goofy end credits with the, like, some of them are outtakes, some of them are right from the movie, and it, I mean, we're right there back in Commandoville, you know? I'm, like, expecting that, like, Long Tall Sally to come up over the soundtrack rather than that big Bill Conti score as they're driving through the the Alps and then doing those cutaways to the guys and, like, here's Brian Brown, here's Clifty Young, he screwed up coming in the door, isn't this funny? <laughs> Yeah, I love, too, that uh, you estimated five minutes of on-screen time together, and I think that's way generous. They're on screen together, I think, you know, a minute maybe, because the character is on screen uh, at the end, but it's Jerry Orbach. True. You know, and, uh, uh, yeah, and Brian Brown takes off the mask uh, and and reveals it's him, but, you know, obviously they had Jerry Orbach uh, playing the role. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they're barely on screen together at all. That was one weird change from the screenplay, too, is that it was uh, Dennehy's character wearing the mask going into the bank. And I was just like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would that necessarily be? I mean, other than Brian Brown would have to be the one to make him up, I guess. But I wouldn't trust him. I I, I like that Leo's out there waiting in the car for him. This had to be, uh, be a, also a movie where uh, the casting, I, I, I assume it had to have changed like during the process of, you know, setting up the movie, right? Uh, does anybody know anything about that? About like the different people considered, different actors considered for these two roles? I do not. And I can't remember. It's been so long since I've interviewed anybody related to this. I mean, it's going to be like a time warp when I go back and listen to these uh, interviews with folks because it's like, oh, yeah, I talked to this guy like midway last year maybe even earlier hopefully we'll hear some of that as we uh, go forward all right we're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews first up you'll hear from the director robert mandel then we'll hear from writer alan ormsby and finally from martin lipton himself cliff de young and we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages it's not easy having a good time and it's not cheap either Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... 
That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy and filmmaking Nick Richards in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us enjoying the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and, of course, SoundCloud. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join sordid slime-slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series Tales from the Crypt. Here's what a rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. <laughs> Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Welcome to the interview portion of this episode. First up, you're going to hear from director Robert Mandel. How did you decide to get into show business? I was a chemistry major in college, and um, there's a lot of theater where I went to school, and I fell in love with the theater. And when it came to medicine or theater, I decided on the theater. And I went to uh, Columbia, got an MFA at Columbia, worked under Joseph Papp who was my mentor there, and then took me to the public theater. And I worked in New York and regional theaters for about 10 years. And then I directed a a Jules Pfeiffer play called Knock Knock, which was picked up by, at that time, public television in Boston and New York, with the entire cast that had performed at Trinity Square in Providence, Rhode Island, and that refused to consider me to direct it. So I thought I didn't want to go through that again. <laughs> so I applied to the American Film Institute. And I knew that acting at, by that time was very comfortable for me. But the mechanics of filmmaking were brand new. And um, remember, this was before we even had videotape. AFI really was responsible for my transitioning from theater to film. And then I made the short film called Nights at O'Rears, which was my thesis film at AFI, which got a lot of attention. 
and set me off, so to speak. Well, as it should have, it's a great film, and it was so nice to see Craig Wasson in that. Yes. I'm sure you're one of the few people who know who Craig Wasson was or is. I, I have really lost track of him. They were great. Both, both of those leads were great. From there, I got an agent, and um, they brought me screenplays, one of which was the first movie, Independence Day, with Kathleen Quinlan. Now, Independence, they really put you on the map, and just the cast for that movie is fantastic. How did you manage to get all those great actors, or were they not necessarily considered the stars that they ended up being at that point? Well, Kathleen Quinlan was the only known star at that point. She had ne- she had done I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. The producer of that film, Dan Blatt, had done, I believe, a TV movie with her and brought her to my attention, and of course I met her, and... Uh, I thought she was perfect for the role. The others I had seen, they they weren't um, famous at the time. Diane Weist, I, I think this was Diane's first film. I knew her because, as I said, I grew out of New York theater, and she was a theater actress. She had come from Yale and made a big splash with Heather Gabler, and I just uh, thought she was terrific. Cliff Young, I also knew from New York. He had been in Sticks and Bones, which was a David Ray play that was at the public theater. And uh, David Keith, I had seen in a movie or two, and I, uh, I thought he would. Uh, so I thought they were great, and I, I was uh, delighted to have them. Marion Dowdy, who who I, I don't know if you're familiar with, but she was a brilliant casting director at Warner Brothers, and because it was the first film of mine, it was great to have her support uh, in in choosing those people. Well, and even, you know, Burt Bramson and Richard Farnsworth, and I love Frances Sternhagen. She is always fantastic. Oh, she was, oh, she's terrific. Again, she was a New York actress. I knew she is wonderful, wonderful. And all of them were terrific in the movie. And I really needed, I mean, that was truly initiation under fire for me because going from a student film, which was Nights of the Rears, to a Warner Brothers movie, was an enormous step, <laughs> enormous, <laughs> and uh, it was great to, you know, have the, the support of the cast. Uh, the producers were, as I recall, down my neck, wanting to come in at a very low number for a low-budget movie, and the stars of that movie uh, were were helpful, helpful in in uh, persuading those producers to uh to give me what i wanted did independence day make a big splash you know it did not at the time uh, not at all uh pauline kale really resurrected that movie it opened in a few theaters in new york and chicago in los angeles uh i know people saw it that and diane was just shortlisted for um an academy award for that movie but did not get a nomination so people saw it but not enough, not enough. And then after Pauline Kael saw it a year or two later, or years on uh, video, on what was that videotape called? Beta or whatever the, that tape was. And she gave it a rave review. Uh, and then Hollywood discover, rediscovered it or discovered it because of her review. So I really do a whole lot to Pauline Kael. Is it true that Touch and Go was supposed to come out next and then just got shelved? That's true. Um, it 
didn't quite get shelled. I think uh, TriStar or uh, was um, being sold to another company. So it was one of those studio uh, business deals, and it got caught in the middle of, of that deal. Uh, so it was kind of held back, which you can imagine on the heels of Independence Day, I was <laughs> not happy about. But the producers and the people who saw the movie really enjoyed the film. So I wasn't as uh, worried about it. I mean, it had a happier ending, I think, than Independence Day. So uh, eventually it did pretty well when it did come out. But it was caught in some studio politics at the time. So how do you get the call? I mean, looking at Independence Day and Touch and Go and Night at Arrears, you don't necessarily seem like the natural choice for the guy who's going to do FX. Correct. Well, I was represented at the time by CAA, and, you know, they were extremely powerful. The way I got to read any script was that it had to trickle through the hands of many, many directors before it got to me. When it got to me, I was in love with the idea of it, but it really was it was conceived as a B-horror movie. Uh, there was a lot of uh, blood and brutality and heads being chopped off and rolled and um, a pretty ugly brutality mixed into the art of a special effects artist. I don't recall as much humor, although I, I suspect, I'm thinking about the original script. I suppose there may have been. I was intrigued because I really did want to do an action movie and I didn't know how that was ever going to happen or a special effects movie. And here it was in my lap. And I remember being Metavoy or asking my agent and asking them, why me? Why, what could it have been that attracted them? And I was told that they had seen Independence Day and they were interested in someone who could direct actors who, who was very, very good with actors and uh, also had a real feel for tension, for creating suspense and tension. And that as far as the uh, special effects, well, it was, uh, the script did not have a car chase. So as far as the special effects were concerned, they had somebody. They actually had lined up John Steers, who, who the producers knew from London, who had done Star Wars. So they had the best effects man, they thought, in the world. And he was. So they weren't concerned about the special effects. So I came aboard. I think I was, I did ask them, I did tell them, I thought it was way, way too brutal for my taste. And I would like to introduce a lot more humor. They let me bring on a writer, Alan Ormsby, who had written the, My Bodyguard at the time. He did what I think is a significant uncredited rewrite because he brought in quite a bit of the humor. He named those, you know, the, when when Lipton comes to see Raleigh for the first time, uh, he named many of those artifacts that he sees, like I Dismember Mama and, and those things. And, you know, so right away, the film was funny. It kind of broke through the, that part. That That's what what concerned me. So I was lucky to get it, I, I guess, but I was very also lucky that in, in this particular case, I had great producers, one of whom I, I'm sure you know is Dodi Fayed, was Dodi Fayed. They were extremely supportive of my 
working on the script and 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 uh, supervising the rewrite. Obviously, you had worked with uh, Clifty Young before this with uh, Independence Day, and then you brought him back with this one. How is he to work with? Well, I think Cliff was great. And, you know, when you're – I can't remember who – I just read it recently about some director who uses people. It's good to have a – if you can, if you can cast somebody who you know and you work well with and you're very, very comfortable um, in, in using a shorthand with – it's great on a movie where you know almost nobody going in, nobody else. And in this case, I thought Cliff would work out, and he did. And the one part of Cliff that is a great part of his personality is if he's on set and he hears you give a direction to an actor and the actor doesn't feel comfortable doing it, then Cliff will say, I can try that. And then when Cliff says, I can try that, the other actor says, well, no, no, let me try. I think maybe I can try. <laughs> and so that helps the director too, you know? Yeah. I, I, and, and I continue to work with Brian. Brian. I made three more movies with Brian, two or three. Brian Dennehy in this case. Yes. Yes. Brian Dennehy. Yes. He is always fantastic and always such a delight to watch. Yes. He, he really is. And he, he's just a, got a heart, a big heart and he's 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 delightful again very very supportive he can be kind of full of bluster and whatever but but when it comes to the work he's terrific well it must have been interesting directing fx because it's almost like two movies in one you've got the the raleigh story in one story and then shooting uh brian dennehy in the other story and the two just meet at the end did you shoot those concurrently or shoot all of one and then shoot the other one? Oh, no, I shot them both at the same time, which was great for both actors because it gave them some days off. And they also had a good, I would say, a good week or two of rehearsal uh, with them before we started and with uh, the other actors who were great. I mean, if it's one thing when you're making a an effects movie or an action movie, you, you, you know you're going to be spending time on the action and effects. So the more rehearsal you can get before, the better. And uh, it makes not only the actors feel more comfortable, but the director feels more comfortable. So no, we I shot them both. At the, I mean, both parts. It was one, in my head, one movie at the same time. Well, it must have been a very fine line to balance those two stories because we we never get too much of one or too much of the other. And it's a really nice way that the Dennehy story kind of starts, you know, it, I, I remembered him so much in that film that I thought he was almost there from the beginning and then rewatching it again the other day. It's like, no, he doesn't come in for a little while, but it really feels like a one part of a whole. I agree. And, and then as I rewatched it recently, I, I also was struck by how late he came into the movie. I had forgotten in a way I had forgotten how strong Diane Venora is in that movie um, and how that relationship, which doesn't really have a lot of screen time, feels like it has more screen time than it does as I watched it. Uh, because the two of them, you know, Diane, another New York actress at the time, you know, just filled her part. I think her part wasn't written quite as well as she played it, quite frankly. 
Why the decision for Brian Brown? I mean, I know he's a great actor and he's fantastic in this, but he wasn't necessarily a known quantity in Hollywood at the time. He wasn't, and I think the role was hard to cast. Remember, it was originally conceived as a B-movie. And although they were happy with the rewrites and encouraging about most of the actors, they still wanted the budget to be on the low scale. They were not thinking of this as a big movie. And I was always a little nervous that they were thinking about this as a B version or watered down version of a James Bond movie. So they, you know, had a list at the time and that I, be, I think started with Jeff Bridges, who, by the way, I think is about the greatest <laughs> actor. At the time, he certainly wasn't the box office name. And uh, Dennis Quaid. And so they had their list. And then my producers, who were from London, came up with the idea of Brian Brown. And I, I really uh, remember, remember his name is Raleigh, which also is kind of British name, uh, the character's name. And so... Uh, I started to explore that idea, and the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. He came off the Thornbirds, and he was quite the romantic hero. I guess it was, again, remembering that they wanted to keep the budget down, it felt like a great compromise. Then, just a, a little addendum to the story, as the footage came in, something that had never happened before, and I was taught it was a terrible thing to do, uh, the editor, Terry Rowling, who had won the Academy Award for Chariots of Fire, sent the Dale, sent cut footage back to the uh, studio without anybody knowing. I guess maybe the producers knew. Again, Terry was another Brit. When they saw that footage, they gave us another million dollars to, to create a, con a car chase, which was not in the script at all. It wasn't in the script at all. But they thought they needed a star, <laughs> and they weren't sure that they now had one. They didn't want to pay for one. So instead, they thought, okay, we'll t have a car chase. And with no writing or anything, just put one in. And so <laughs> that, that was quite a bit of work to create one that could make sense and be exciting. And, and, I, and I'm very, very happy with the result. But it was a very expensive car chase closing the um, West Side Highway and bringing these people traveling the stuntmen at that time from L.A. because New York at the time didn't, wasn't considered to have great stunt drivers. That was part of the um, star episode. It must have been a nice injection of funds, but also a little bit disconcerting to just suddenly have to whip up a car chase. Well, it was really very disconcerting to whip up a car chase. Remember, when they're so, they were very, very excited about the footage. They just were very happy. And of course, you didn't want to disappoint. On the, you know, on the one hand, you're very grateful. On the other hand, you're thinking, oh my God, what, what, what are we going to do now? And uh, how are we going to use this money? And how are we not going to disappoint them? So we worked feverishly. Uh, when I say we, it was pr primarily me and the DP at the time, Mirik Andracek who was 
the greatest, absolutely the greatest. And uh, he, he and I really created that car chase. It's obviously a movie called FX is going to live or die by its effects. And you hadn't necessarily done too many effects in the past. So how is it working None. with effects teams now? None. Well, remember I had John Steers. I always point to these people I was blessed to have on that film. And he was, a, as all of them were, very, a big collaborator, happy to collaborate. The one thing I was not prepared for, and it was really a test of my patience, I didn't realize how many hours we would have to wait for these effects to be set up. Now, I understand a lot, a lot, of, a lot of them were pre-rigged. And you get into the restaurant the day before or whatever, and you pre-rig it, and you production design team comes over and comes out, and everybody does their thing. So the expectation is you get on the set, and then you can start to uh, to move. But no, <laughs> that's not true. The effects team seems to need triple the amount of time that the other teams need. In later years, I realized how how grateful I was because I will tell you that there were days I waited that the day I'm thinking of is the restaurant day where you wait for four hours. You, you do really virtually nothing, but you're on the clock and, um, and then you do this with four cameras in really one take and then a uh, another take that's like half a little less than half of it to to get a couple of extra cuts of that big lobster tank going over, and then you're out. But you wait four hours, and if and of course the other part of it is if it doesn't happen, you have to rebuild and, re- and do it again. And I was I was just not prepared for the patience that I needed, and I learned through that through FX. Um, what you need, how patient you have to be, which put me in good stead when I did things like X Files or you know other other even a lot of TV movies that had effects in them. But it doesn't sound like you're hoping to rush out and do uh, another maybe like a, a pure sci-fi film right afterwards. Well, you know the thing about first of all, I love sci-fi films. Who, who doesn't? As I watch these effects, for example, well, yeah, like the phone booth exploding, that was, so now you have rain, you have controlled Manhattan streets, you have traffic, and you have your actors in the scene. Well, again, you're waiting a couple of hours, and then when it goes off, the crowd that has gathered to watch applauds like they have just seen the greatest show in the world. So, so you can't divorce yourself from knowing what the effect of the special effects have on the audience, whether now today they're visual or mechanical special effects. The effect on the audience is tremendous. Uh, not to mention at the time, the movie's called FX. But yes, I love sci-fi and I... Now knowing what I know would do more, and and I just what did I oh I did this uh, sci-fi TV show for called Dominion where they were loaded with big big visual effects, 
which because I had taken a hiatus at AFI, I hadn't done for many years. And uh, again, the joy of that is, is the conceiving of what is happening. I, I guess the effects artists would call it pre-visual, pre-vis. That is the joy of uh, effects. It, it is not pleasurable st- sitting on the stage and, and waiting hours for it to happen. But the conceiving, the ideas, the writing of it is is the joy of it. Well, what were some of your favorite memories of making effects? Well, oddly enough, many of the effects were favorite memories. And certainly a lot of the people I miss, um, Terry Rawlings and Mirik Andrzejczyk, and I could go down the list, including Dodie Fayed, who surprised me when he was with Princess Diana. I mean, so I have a lot of uh, those memories. There were wonderful people, all of them. The actors always I, I love working with. I'm trying to think of individual scenes. As I watched it, I, I'm always happy to see Central Park and how beautiful it looked and how well shot I thought that sequence was. Yeah, I guess the effect sequences, certainly the restaurant, I remember Dick Satter always gave it when I taught it at the American Film Institute. I always gave my class that the script of that opening scene and asked them how they would do it and as a as a as an introduction into the use of two and three cameras in the in the action scene. I mean those are the parts of the movie I remember most and the last uh, line of the one of the last lines of the movie when he says crazy glue there were 101 ways to use it and now there are 102 or whatever that ex- exact line was I thought uh, and I loved him Mason Adams he was from uh, Lou Grant he played Lou Grant's boss and T. I I just thought he was terrific and I thought he was gr- because he was such an honest truthful beloved boss of Lou Grant I thought he would be just the perfect person to play <laughs> so, <laughs> This uh, terrible killer of a of a Justice Department, the head of the Justice Department. I mean, and then getting to work with Jerry Orbach, he is just amazing. The best, just the best. I was lucky with those actors. I mean, many of them I know I cast in New York, so I I had a feeling for how it would turn out, but I didn't know. For example, the, the, what, in little scenes, when Brian Dennehy sits down with that computer uh, expert, uh, Guzman, I think is her last name, uh, the actress, who gives him the information, I, I didn't know how great those actors could be creating a chemistry just in those few scenes, just between those two people. And, and I think... AFX kind of sings along on those um, relationships. Um, Brian Dennehy introduced me to Joe DeFazio, DeFazio who plays uh, his sidekick, and, and he was terrific. So, you know, the, it, it's the connections and the relationships that, that I think elevate the movie. Now, obviously, this, what was supposed to be Little B movie, did better than anybody expected because here we've got a sequel, we've got a TV show, all of this stuff happening. How did that affect your career? How did the the success of FX help you? It was strange because um, having done this big action, or well, for me was big action FX movie. I was 
interested in going back to doing something more like Independence Day, something more where I had more total control. I wanted to do that. Mike Medavoy called me and asked me to do the sequel to FX, but I had to commit to the sequel before seeing a screenplay. And there, I, I really didn't want to do that. I didn't want to commit to a sequel. And quite frankly, I'm glad I didn't. They had an outline and I read the outline and Brian Dennehy's part wasn't even in the outline. And Mike said, oh, don't worry, we'll write him in. Don't worry, you can do whatever you want with him. And you know, I was not a screenwriter. I didn't push it. I also wasn't in love with sequels that had been made in Hollywood at the time. Uh, I think that's, that's changed enormously since those days. But sequels weren't wasn't something I was looking to be known for to do, so uh, I I declined that offer, and I never saw the mo- I never saw the movie <laughs> I never saw the movie. Now I tend not to not to see movies where where I, where I step away from them where I say no. You're not missing much, but I heard I heard although it didn't hurt I forget the writer of that movie it didn't hurt his career he's terrific. Yeah oh yeah was it uh, Bill Condon? Yes, yes, yes. But he was a writer, you know. I mean, that they do. I think it's that's great. So why big shots? Why'd you go into big shots? Well, I, I think that was a mistake. I take full responsibility for it. Of course, uh, my agents really wanted me to do it. Um, I did see a certain humor in big shots. I had young children at the time, so I. I saw what I thought it could be. And there was a lot of excitement about having me join Joe Esterhaus and Ivan Reitman. And just between us, I think it was the wrong combination. Um, so I have to classify it as a mistake, but who, who doesn't make them? That's all I can say. At the time, at the time of course, I was devastated. Now, many years later, I, I'm a little more philosophical about it. Was Joe Esterhaus the notorious Joe Esterhaus at this point in time? Well, not as notorious as he became, for sure. I think he was on the cusp of uh, his war with, or just right after, maybe before the movie came out, he had this war with Mike Ovitz, uh, where he left CAA. And, uh, and, 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 And Little Big Shots, or Big Shots, was a package, a CAA package, which is why they wanted wanted me to do it. And part of the reason I left them eventually, because I didn't understand, I didn't understand, I didn't understand packages at the time. I didn't understand, as I look back, I I can't get over how naive I was about many things at the time. That's hindsight. And uh, Joe was pretty good, though. I mean, I, I had no problem working with Joe. I guess whatever problems I had happened you know, Ivan brought in his people and to uh, edit. I liked uh, whoever that I forget his name, the editor. Got along very well. I mean, I stayed and we worked on it, but it it moved into a direction, maybe a silliness or something that wasn't quite my taste. Um, that being said, I did see it in front of audiences before it opened, and boy, they went for it in a big, big way. So. So I think people were surprised when it didn't do as well as they thought it might. 
previews did pretty well. I'm curious, how was it working with uh, Jersey Skolimowski? He was great. He was just, he was great. I sometimes think maybe other directors are the best actors to work with because they know what you're, they know what you're going through and they're just there to make you happy and there to serve you and there to get it done. And he was great. Um, certainly, uh, I, I haven't worked with other directors, but he put himself completely in the role of the actor and, uh, we didn't really talk about uh, his movies very much. I mean, he had a very small role, as I, rec- as I recall. Well, you definitely bounced back with your next film with School Ties. I remember that being a pretty good hit when that came out. It was. It was. And that, I, I loved it. Again, you know, I, unfor- whether fortunately or unfortunately, I had a great deal of luck on that movie, a little like FX. I mean, here I was even working with, I thought, the greatest producer in the world, Sherry Lansing, who continues to be a very close friend of mine. And she was terrific. She had acted and she understood acting. Mm -hmm. And I went off and did research and did some traveling to the the prep schools and talked to the alumni. So I was, uh, I had quite a time to prepare for it. The, The screenplay I got I never worked with Dick Wolf, although he gets credit for the screenplay. I I, I worked with Daryl Tonickson, who wrote many drafts of that movie. Again, I had a terrific cast. They were Sherry was extremely supportive, and as was Stanley. Uh, so, and a lot of luck goes into these movies. You know, as they say, the movie gods were looking down on it. Um, the actors were terrific. We were very. We had several of them, uh, but the the studio wouldn't let the movie go until we cast uh, the lead, Brendan, the lead, and uh, he was hard. It was hard to find that person who could uh, who could be other than the other kids and yet want to fit in, or or the, the other kids wouldn't know that he was Jewish. I loved it. Loved every minute of that movie. You went on to work in television quite a bit, including one of the shows that's unbelievably still with us today, The X-Files, having directed the pilot episode. Did you think back then in, what, 1993, that we would still be talking about The X-Files in 2018? No, not in a million years. And as things happen, I used to exhaust myself thinking about what movies to take, what movies not to take. Should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? I would be exhausted by the time I said yes or no to a, a screenplay. But with the pilot, with F, with X-Files, I just remember saying to my wife, I cannot use the same energy I use for features to start to think about television in that exhaustive way. I can't do it. So I'm just going to do it. And this is what happened. Again, uh, Chris was a delight, and he was he was great. He had done four pilots, I think, to that point. None of them went. He was hell-bent on, on having X-Files go. And I remember, here's what sealed the deal with Chris. I We talked, and I said, as I am with all producers and writers, particularly writers, <laughs> I said, uh, you know, we, we have this kind of pact of honesty. We're going to be very honest. And I said, I wanted him to see uh, Helen Mirren. She had been in Prime Suspect. 
And not that many people saw it. I just, it knocked me out. And the way it was done, the kind of what I would maybe call low key, I showed it to Chris and I said, I think this is the way we should do the pilot. I mean, when you're talking about implants and people's noses and them being abducted and, you know, and you want people to really believe this, I think we should play it like they did in this movie, which to me was like underplay it, just be very, very, very real about it. And he said he loved it, loved it. He said, but one thing, promise me, he says, we cannot tell anybody else about this movie. We can't talk to the studio about this movie, a prime suspect, because they will not understand it. But it it was a great common ground and a starting point for, for the pilot. Do you mind if I ask you how you got involved with the Rage Carry 2? Oh, no, I don't mind uh, because I didn't make it. I was smart then. This was in development. Carry 2 was in development for a very, very long time. And Carrie is one of my very, very favorite movies. I love it. So I, and I met Paul Monash and I thought, okay, good. And then the regime at, MGM changed and I met an executive at MGM who had newly was new to MGM and MGM changed all of their top executives. This executive told me that he or she did not want to make the movie and didn't know why MGM had bought the material. And didn't I agree that directors made these kinds of movies in their spare time and didn't really believe in them either. And I, I was really shocked because I had worked with the writer for a long time on it. Cutting a long story short, MGM, I think, was forced to make the movie because of money that they owed Paul Monash and but rights situations, I really don't know. It wasn't my salary that forced them to do it, but they were forced to make the movie. And uh, we started making it. And we had differences. We just had differences, creative differences. I mean, that's what it's called. It was real. I had never been involved with them before. Pat Palmer was the producer, the greatest. He was Norman Jewison's producer. He was the greatest. Uh, Had some other great people. And um, they wanted a different kind of movie, which I suspect they eventually got. Again, it's a movie I did not see, (laughs) but, uh, but it wasn't the movie I set out to make. But I had been with it for a good year, maybe more, uh, developing the screenplay and hoping it would go. And when MGM was very, very excited about it before there was the regime change, they were very, very excited about it. You know, movies really do get caught in these regime changes, as I'm sure you've heard, you know. And this was one of this was one of them. At least twice this is happening to you. No, one the movie was made. That was the release of the movie. That's different. This, the movie was being made. I mean, in a funny way, Touch and Go I made and I was satisfied and I had a a great experience and it was all good. I was disappointed that it was being held back. I knew it would eventually come out. I had no idea that it would be held back for that length of time. Um, but, uh, But movies have been held back. That wasn't a big deal. Carrie was a bigger deal because I, you know, I had tremendous, uh, I guess uh, directors weren't supposed to leave movies. I really believed it in my heart. I thought it was terribly unprofessional to leave, terribly unprofessional to leave. 
and yet I was being ripped apart. And then, then there comes a time when you realize that they'll be fine if I leave. I mean, you, you feel like you're letting all the actors that you cast down, all the, you know, all of the people who you put together that you might let down, but I just couldn't live with it. And, and to this day, I'm still, I wouldn't say torn apart by it, but I, I guess I would have left again. It seems even now so deeply unprofessional to leave a, a movie. I've always thought that. So, so, but people, when you recreate the differences, it's really true. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I always thought it was just a, a kind way of saying you're fired or, you know, no, this was real creative differences that lead to it. Well, tell me, what have you been up to lately? I spent nine years at AFI, went back, I stepped down, wanting to uh, continue in some way to, um, into a career. Hollywood changed in the nine years pretty drastically. I mean, we have a lot of uh, emphasis in television on diversity, which I, don't, I think is fine. But I am not what television is looking for at this time, although I have done some episodes and I enjoy doing them. But what I realized uh, at AFI, I, I had an artistic director, Frank Pearson, and, and he, who also was the president of the Academy. And then after him, Jim, uh, Jim Brooks came in as the artistic director, who I actually brought into AFI. He was talking. And he said, you know, the brass ring is really to create something that you then can direct. So what I've been doing now is something I've always wanted to do is uh, write my own content. I have two screenplays. One was optioned and the option expired. The other one I'm just about to send out. And I'm also uh, involved in, I have written a pilot that I'm going out now with a partner to uh, sell. So uh I have, I guess, become a screenwriter, which when I was raising a family, I couldn't ever uh, take the luxury, as it were, to, 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 to do it. Because, as you know, my background was theater. I was a theater director, and I was for a long time interested in being a director only. But now I really do want to write. The other part of going to AFI, just to, to finish off the story, is... You, sometimes you feel trapped, you know, um, the kinds of movies that you were making, like School Ties, for example, movie studios are no longer making. And then you start to work in television pretty much, but the, t the medium is completely different in terms of the demands of the director. First of all, the director is usually a guest, comes in, doesn't always create. I mean, if you're lucky enough to be a pilot director, you create, but most of the times you're a guest and uh, the actors know much more about the characters than you will if they've been working there for a year or two. Uh, so you are, uh, in a sense, making, you're doing your best, but you also are very aware of the schedule and the time and you don't want to go beyond the number of days that are scheduled. This can be a trap and uh, I felt it at a certain time in my life it was which is why when I was offered the job of uh, the dean of AFI, I thought it was great. And I, I just thought I needed, needed a hiatus from directing. Now I'm back with a reinvigorated and, and writing and, and starting to create my own work. We'll see how it does. Never easy. 
But boy, you're away for nine years and everything changes. Format, screen size, everything. What people watch TV on, you know, it's, it, things change. So I'm, uh, I'm creating for, for either film or television. Well, that's nice, though, that you have those ba- both in your background, that you seem to be able to switch from one to another without too much trouble. Uh, you know, when I went back after nine years, I was terrified of directing Dominion, which was the first episode I got. And people said to me, oh, come on, it'll be like uh, getting back on the bike. You know, you never forget back on the bike. And I was really terrified uh, first of all, it was, I had to, it was in Cape Town, South Africa, which is very far. I was already very concerned about the time difference. I was going to manage to, to just do my best after one after that kind of flight the next day. It, it was in my bones. It was like getting back on a bike and I didn't take any of it for granted as I had done before I left for AFI. Uh, so when it, so that hiatus, a hiatus, can do you a world of good. Well, Mr. Mandel, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been great. Well, you're very, very welcome. I'm so glad that you've dis- rediscovered or, yes, rediscovered FX. And uh, I hope your audiences enjoyed, enjoy your podcast. You'll have to let me know when it's on. Will do, definitely. Next up, you're going to hear from screenwriter Alan Ormsby, who I asked, how did he first meet Robert Mandel? I think my agent put us together, and uh, we became friends. And the first one we worked on was a, um, a Michael Keaton movie where he played a, he was a hockey player. And I did a rewrite on that, and we got along really well, collaborated really well. I don't know when FX came along exactly, because we've, we've, we've worked on many projects most of which never got anywhere. But I remember reading the FX script, and because I had had this background in makeup and stuff, he asked me for my input. And I wish I could tell you exactly what I did on this rewrite. I I looked for the pages, but they're long gone. I didn't do a whole lot. I think I rewrote a couple of scenes, maybe, and I added some of the movie stuff. I remember that uh, I Dismember Mama is in the movie, and that came from a an, an ad campaign that I did years earlier where we, they had, a, they had some low budget movie they were trying to sell. And, and I said, well, let's call it, I dismember mama because it was about a guy who hated his mother. It's kind of a psycho thing. And where that came from was when we, when I was a kid, there was a TV show on called, I remember mama. And my, my brother used to make this joke and called it I Dismember Mama. And so it really came back from my brother, you know, back in the 50s sometime. Anyway, so Bob put that in the movie. I just, I know I talked to him a lot. I told him about, I had worked with Tom Savini on one of these low-budget movies. And I don't know, I guess I guess he picked my brain on it. And I gave him some books on makeup and then I rewrote some of the stuff. But I can't tell you specifically what I, other than the I Dismember Mama joke, about all I can remember. So that's kind of a short history. That scene of 
all the titles and going through and pointing at the props and all that, that is one of the better scenes, especially because you're getting to know Clifty Young at that point and getting to know kind of what a movie nerd he is at that point, and it humanizes his character quite a bit. I just remember the cop going through and saying, oh, I just remember Mama, I saw that or something. I, 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 I remember Cliff, was Cliff a bad guy in that? Yeah, and they've got all that stuff with uh, Jerry Orbach getting the cast made of his face, which yeah. is... Well, I'm sure I told Bob about that. I mean, his makeup people would have known that anyway, but he didn't know much about it. So I, I remember telling him about how we did all that kind of stuff. So I guess he, so he had some knowledge of it when he shot the scene and everything. It's always tough talking to writers because what you were saying before, there are all the projects that you work on and just never get made or the things that you rewrite that you never get your name on. So you can look at a writer's resume and it's like, yeah, this guy worked twice over 20 years. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, you do a lot of uncredited work and you do a lot of projects that don't get made. You know, I mean, I've sold a couple of scripts where I made a lot of money, but the movies never got made. It's a nice living, but you don't ever, you don't often see the results on the screen. Yeah, it is hard because, and it, it was quite a while ago. I mean, it was like 1986 or something. It's very hard to say exactly what my contribution was. I think it was a good script, and uh, whatever I contributed, it, it, it wouldn't take away from anything the original writers came up with. You know, it was their, it was their baby. Well, you would go on to work with, with Bob Mandel a few more times, at least with uh, The Substitute, for sure. Yes, right, The Substitute. Well, that was another rewrite that... that um, when he asked me to look at the script, it was such a violent script. I mean, it really was really almost like an X-rated violent movie, you know. And I kept thinking, gosh, they, Bob wants to make this? I, I was kind of shocked because he's, he's, you know, he's not a violent person. <laughs> and, uh, it didn't seem like his cup of tea, but so we... He brought me in to rewrite it, and we and the studio was like they liked the idea, but they also felt it was way over the top. And so basically, what I did was I kind of retooled it and kept as much of the good stuff as I could keep, and and uh, eliminated a lot of the excessive. Even that what we did, people thought was too violent. So I mean, you can imagine what the original was like. The two guys who, or the three, or whoever it was who wrote it, did a good job, but they had a very particular vision, and it was a very kind of right wing frankly, kind of racist approach to the stuff, which I thought was, you know, nobody wanted to do that. It's funny because years ago, I was going to make write a script called The Substitute, only it wasn't an action film. It was about a guy who was a substitute teacher. Um, it's just odd that I ended up writing a movie, rewriting a movie called The Substitute, which was completely different, <laughs> completely different realm. Well, yeah, you seem to really revel, at least looking at your CV, really revel in the comedic and in the horror genres. And so, yeah, when you see like straight out action, like the substitute was, it's like, yeah, this doesn't necessarily jive too well. Well, we tried to put some humor in it, too. It didn't really have a lot of humor, as I recall, the original. I, re I remember there was a scene where he took a blowtorch to some guy. And yeah, and I thought, yeah, I don't think so. I'm not, <laughs> not going to do that. And there was another scene where he raked one of these parents over the coals, and it was a, a black woman who was on welfare, and he he was lecturing her on having too many children and all this. I mean, it was really 
kept thinking, I can't believe they actually bought this. But they made several sequels, which I had nothing to do with, by the way, even though my name is on some of them. Um, I didn't have anything to do. I've never even seen them. So You also wrote one of my favorite films growing up, which was My Bodyguard. I loved that movie. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that, that, the funny thing about that movie is um, I was living in Florida and I was still in the toy business. And I decided I would write a Clint Eastwood movie spec script and see if I could sell it. And it was called The Bodyguard, and it was about Clint Eastwood playing a guy who was hired to be a, a bodyguard. Then I read in The Hollywood Reporter that there was a script floating around called The Bodyguard written by Lawrence Kasdan. So I thought, oh, well, shit, I can't can't call it the bodyguard anymore. And I kind of put it aside. And when I came out to um, when I moved to L.A., I took it out again and I was working on it. And I liked the idea a lot, actually. But at some point, I just thought, you know, there's a lot of these floating around. I should do something different. And my son came home and was telling me about I guess he was being bullied or something. And I just thought, oh, I'll make it about kids. I'll make it about a kid who hires a bodyguard. And it, you know, it just, it felt right and it sort of came out right. And it was the script that really got me a career and a, a nice movie that I like. Do you mind if I ask you, how did you get involved with the Cat People remake? Well, after Tony Bill bought My Bodyguard and decided it, it was going to be his first directorial effort, I had an agent named Marianne Maloney. She had been in the publishing business in New York and she came out to LA and then she became this executive at Universal. She said, um, we want to do a remake of The Cat People. Do you have any interest in that? And it was one of the movies, the original. And I said, yes, I would really like to do that. So I hadn't seen it in a while. So she screened it for me, I think. And, and I went and pitched some ideas about what I'd like to do. And they liked them. And Roger Vadim at that point was going to direct the movie. And they showed me the other scripts, which I didn't read all of them because I didn't want to be influenced. But ironically, one of them was written by Bob Clark. So I took a different approach to the material. I, I originally wanted it to be kind of like this play Equus. And it was going to be a psychiatrist who is treating this girl who thinks she turns into a cat, you know, when she gets aroused. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of an interesting idea, but it, it, it just felt a little talky or something. I don't know. And at, at some point, Vadim and I went to New Orleans because he, it was his idea to set it in New Orleans, and he wanted to use voodoo. So um, we went to New Orleans and kind of did a field trip. And at that point, I thought, well, I don't want to make him a shrink. I'm going to make him a zookeeper, because that seemed like a guy who might have a sort of strange attraction to wild animals. <laughs> yeah, it seems kind of funny to me now. But anyway, so I was working on the script, and Vadim had, was finished this, finishing this movie he was directing, and he screened it. And when the executives, we all went to, to this screening, and the movie was really not good. They basically decided on the basis of that to fire him. And they were looking around for another director. And I don't know, somehow the script got to Paul Schrader. And he liked it, and he wanted to do it. So I met with him. And he, it was a great experience working with him, I guess because he was a very well-known writer who had written some great movies. He was not in any way threatened by working with another writer, you know, and he was very clear on what he wanted and what he didn't want. Basically, he liked what I did. And, you know, if I disagreed with something, I would say so. And if he agreed with me, he'd say, okay, fine. And I, I mean, he was open, but if he was felt strongly about something, he'd say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to, you know, 
but he was a great person to work for because, you know, he knew his own mind, knew what he wanted, knew what he liked and didn't like. And that's rare when you're writing. Usually people fudge and ham and haw and they don't kind of know what they want. And, and you end up, you know, writing yourself to death trying to figure it out. But it was great with Schrader. And, you know, I have I have some minor little things about the movie that that I don't care for. But I like it a lot better now than I did at the time. I I kind of knew it wasn't going to be a hit when I saw it finally, because first of all, the whole attitude had changed. The public had changed. Instead of wanting gory or, or weird horror movies, they wanted E.T. You know, E.T. had come out right at that time, and it kind of changed kind of changed everything. And I know The Thing, the Carpenter movie, which I think is a great movie, also kind of didn't do well, and, and Cat People didn't do well. And Schrader, I think, left L.A. after that movie because of its reception. Uh, but I like it now. I like it better than I did then. It's aged well, and then I love the extra life that uh, David Bowie's song has gotten since then. I've ended up seeing that. and I know. What, Inglorious Bastards and Atomic Blonde, and it's like, Yes. Oh, okay. That's right. And it's funny because at one point I remember suggesting to Schrader that he cast David Bowie in the role played by um, Malcolm McDowell because he just seemed like he would be, he was so cat-like, you know, to me. And, um, but uh, he didn't do that. But he used that song, which was great. God, yeah. Thinking about it. I mean, he made a great vampire in The Hunger. Yeah. That's probably what gave me the idea. Although maybe we, maybe ours was before that. I don't know. I can't it remember. Been, yeah, somewhere around there because that was early '80s as well, if memory serves. Yeah, I thought he would have been great. But and Malcolm McDowell is a wonderful actor, but he wasn't as, to me, as feline-like as David Bowie was. I've always been curious. Whenever I talk to somebody and their name is not on something that I know that they worked on, I'm always curious. Why no credit on Popcorn? Oh God. Oh, that's just um, miserable movie-making stories. Um, I left that project. And, um, well, you remember they're, they're at a horror movie-thon. I, I did all the movies within the movie. I had completed all of that. There were a lot of problems because the producer wanted to do it in Jamaica, and, and I don't know, there were all kinds of problems. And basically, I uh, I left the project, and they brought in somebody else. And they wanted to put my name on it, and I, I didn't want it on there because I... Just a bad experience all the way around. The movie within a movie, for whatever reason, has a real, and this is a compliment, has a real Joe Dante flavor to it. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because I think Joe Dante was heavily influenced by that movie. When he did Matinee, I mean, it could have come out of popcorn, really. When I met Joe for another project, he said something like, oh, I used the same shot that you used in Popcorn for whatever it was his movie was. And uh, I was going to do a remake of The Mummy, and Joe was going to direct it. That didn't come about either. Eventually, they made The Mummy, but they did it with, um, yes, Stephen Summers did it. But they had a lot of writers doing different versions of The Mummy. Um, so I think Stephen Summers cherry-picked the stuff that he liked because I know there's stuff from my script in that movie, not in the same context, but it definitely came from my script. I didn't care for what they did with it. but And then they tried it again with Tom Cruise, and I don't know what they were thinking with that, but why did they even call it The Mummy? You know, I mean, it just was an odd combination of genres. I mean, it was like a horror movie and an action movie 
I, I, I don't know what Tom Cruise was doing in it, you know. They refused to take the mummy seriously. I don't know why, because it seems to me that there's a lot of creepiness that you could get out of an, an idea of a mummy coming back to life. And they just, you know, Universal, they just don't know what to do with those horror characters. They've tried several times, and they've just, you know, screwed it up every time, I think. Except for maybe, uh, no, they didn't do Wonder Woman, did they? No, that was Warner Brothers. But they did this Van Helsing, and that was horrible, and they did... I don't know, they were going to do this whole dark universe thing, and I'm just so glad they put that on the back burner because I don't know what they were thinking. I, I tell you what the problem is. These people, like Joe Dante is not like this, but these people, they don't understand these old horror movies. They don't appreciate them. They don't like them. They don't want to make them really, and they're just thinking of it as a kind of a, like they can imitate Marvel or something. And Marvel has a very specific, you know, I mean, whether you like Marvel movies or not, they have a very clear definition for their movies, you know. And I think they believe in them, and they and they know how to make them, and they know how to cast them, and they know how to, like, connect them all together. And, and they have a lot of humor, and they have great special effects. I mean, to me, they kind of run all together in my mind. But, but they are well done, you know, at least the ones I've seen. The way that you would, like a cat people, completely updating what cat people was from, you know, the original, from the Turner version of it, or even looking at children shouldn't play with dead things in the way that you, even though you said like, let's rip off night of the living dead or Bob Clark said that it's so different. It's four years later and it's already so different from that. And yeah. the mixing of the humor at the beginning. And then, I mean, that movie is still genuinely creepy. Yeah. It's funny. It, it, it had a longer shelf life than I would have ever imagined. Uh, when we made it, uh, I mean, there was no video back then. And, you know, I thought it would play the drive-ins and disappear. I was even shocked when it popped up on television because it was such a low-budget, obscure kind of movie, drive-in movie. Well, the moment when the zombies are coming out of their graves, they used bits of that for, or at least around here in Detroit, the, I think it was the Channel 20 uh, thriller double feature, they would use that as part of their opening for that. And they would use the oh, really? breakdown from a uh, whole lot of love when the guitar is kind of going nuts and Robert Palmer is doing the whole, ah, ah, kind of thing. That was their <laughs> way of introducing these movies. So that image of the zombies coming out of the ground, just even seeing that again the other night when I was rewatching the movie, I was like, oh my God, yeah, this is still really creepy. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the best scene in the movie. Um, I, I, you know, I, I like the movie and I kind of don't like it at the same time because I, 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 if I hadn't been in it, I'd, I'd like it better. I like the zombies. I feel good about the, the zombies came out very well and it is spooky at the end. It, I wish we had done a little more, a little less talking and a little more action earlier on. But, you know, look, we had 50 grand and shot it in 30. By a millimeter with all these extras. I mean, it was it was a chore. And I have to say, Dead of Night or um, what's the other word for it? Death Dream. Death Dream. Oh my God! Yeah, that movie is still as effective. I watched that on TCM a long time ago when they showed it. Yeah, that's right. They showed oh, it. Yeah. yeah, I recorded that. I think on uh, VCR on VHS and watched that the next day, and it was so good. Well, that's really the first script, the first original script I ever wrote. I, I worked, wrote some of the stuff in children, but, but, uh, this was the, you know, this was totally my script and 
I wrote it very quickly, I remember, because the idea sort of came to me kind of all at the same, all at once, you know. And um, that doesn't happen very often, by the way. I don't know if you write scripts, but, you know, to have the story actually all come to you, all three acts or whatever the beats are, that's great when that happens, because to me, that's what a script is really all about. It's all about the story. If Once you get the story, the script, it can be written, you know, you could write it in a weekend. But the hard part is always getting the story. And when you see movies that have script problems, it's always they have story problems. They never worked out the story. Or they have no story. And um, it's, it's hard. It's hard to come up with one. That happened with My Bodyguard, and it happened with Death Dream, and it happened with a, a movie I wrote called The Pool, which never got made. They bought it, but they never made the movie. It's funny how when that happens, it's you, you know you feel very lucky because most of the time it's just a struggle and a you know you're just constantly. I mean, I think for writers it's better now in a way because they have these long form TV shows where they can they don't really have to wrap it all up in an hour. They can carry it over ten weeks or something or five weeks or whatever it is, and that's that gives you a lot of leeway that you don't have in a two hour movie, you know. You really have to shorthand a lot of stuff in a, in a movie script. Well, you talked about writing down some of these memories that you've had. What else are you working on these days? Well, I'm actually working on a project with Bob Mandel. Um, so we'll see if that goes anywhere. Um, I can't really talk about what it's about. But, but um, I mean, he has other things, too. And I, st- I have a screenplay I'm working on aside from that and uh, a play I wrote, which is being sent out and... <laughs> See if that. I started as a playwright. I mean, originally, plays are funny. I don't know if you're interested in theater, but it's harder to get a play done than to get a movie done. I swear to God. Well, you know, I guess they have to gather the cast, and they don't make any money on it, and they have to rehearse it and put it up. And a movie, if they like the script and if it if it looks like a go, I mean, you know, once you've got it, it's done. You don't have to repeat it every night with the live cast. Of course, you can you take less chances with a movie than you can with a play. But um, I like writing plays because I feel like I, it can really it's really my voice. You know, it's not a director interpreting what I wrote. Um, and I, I like the screenplay form, but you know, you are writing for somebody else to turn it into the final product. And you know, you don't always agree with what they do. But I've been pretty lucky. I mean, I, I think Tony Bill did a good job, and I liked what Paul and I liked what Bob did. And I haven't had too many experiences where I really hated what they did. Maybe a couple. Well, how about when you're directing your own stuff or directing somebody else's stuff? I know, like, you know, I know you don't want to talk about popcorn very much, but like doing you—you you were what a co-director on Deranged, or what yes, was this? okay? Yes. Jeff and I co-directed it. And we worked very well together. You know, Jeff was more technically proficient than I was at that point. We, you know, when I, when I, I did a, a very superficial rewrite on that script, really turned it into a shooting script. I may, probably made some cuts and things. Um, and Jeff was, he and I did it together, kind of planned out how we would shoot this or that. And, and we really would, tra- you know, trade places on the set. I mean, he'd do a scene, I'd do a scene. Some, you know, we got along very well, and there was never any conflict about it. And I don't know, that movie, you know, some people think it's terrible, and some people like it. It's, uh, I think it's funny. I mean, to me, it's a funny movie, except the last 10 minutes. But um, 
it's so it, when when they brought me this material, the producer Tom Carr, he said I met him at a convention or something, and he had seen children, I think, and he wanted to make this movie, and he um, he sent me a bunch of clippings, I think, about Ed Gein. And I don't remember if I'd heard of Ed Gein or not, but uh, I read these clippings. It was so horrific, you know, the butcher of Plainfield or whatever, whatever they called him. And I read, I thought, oh, my God, how are we supposed to do this? And the only way I could conceive of doing it was to make it kind of a black comedy. And uh, we deliberately made it gruesome because that's what the producer wanted, and he thought that's what he could sell. And I don't know... If I guess he made money on it. I think he sold it to AIP at some point, American International. But and I think it was banned in Boston. But that's not a movie you see on television. No, that was one that I remember not even knowing about it until I imagine it was uh not even a DVD release, I think it was a VHS release and it just seemed to pop up and people were talking about this movie that as if it had been lost or something. Yeah, well it was kind of lost. I mean it uh it disappeared. Whereas Children and Death Dream both showed on television. But Deranged, yeah, it, it vanished um, for a long time. And some intrepid soul brought it back. <laughs> I think it was uh, maybe Tom Carr, the producer. I don't know who brought it back, but some guy in England wanted to, uh, I think, release it on. Yes, yes, I know. It was David Gregory because uh, he did an interview with me. He came to my house and videotaped a little interview that went on the end, the tail of the, uh, of the, of the VHS. And then, um, just a couple of years ago, uh, uh, they did a Blu-ray and I did a commentary for that. Then we did a death dream thing just recently with David again on for Blu-ray. So all of those movies now are, are done and out there in one form or another. And we did a, we did a commentary on children shortly after Bob Clark died. Anya was part of it. Then Jane Daly, who, played the ingenue in the movie. Yeah, when I saw the poster art for Deranged and saw Robert's Blossom on there, I was like, I'm sold. Because just to see him in anything, uh, he was always such a pleasure to watch. Yeah, yeah, he was great. Uh, He kind of disowned that movie, though. (laughs) Of all the movies for him to disown. I know, his his one starring role, I think. But I used him in another movie that, that also disappeared, and it kind of resurfaced a couple of years ago. Somebody was trying to put it out, but it was a a comedy, um, and he was in that. He played a, I think he was the villain in it, maybe. Which one was that? Uh, well, it was originally called The Great Masquerade. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that's out on Amazon Prime right now. Um, oh, is it really? Oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> it's got a different name. Now. It's pretty bad. It's not, well, not as bad as I remembered, actually. It was better than I had remembered. Well, I, I watched it and I thought, okay, it's it's not great, but it's not horrible, as horrible as I remembered. Yeah, it's under Murder on the Emerald Seas. That's right, right, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, if if uh, you're doing it and Robert's Blossom is there, I am there. And Paul is in it, who was in Children, and Anya's in it, and I think some other, I think Jeff is in it. And Johnny Weissmuller? Yeah, Johnny. Well, the guy who produced it was the DP on on those other movies and somehow he got some money together not much and got these people to let us use this cruise ship and we started when we started we were in the wake of a hurricane and everybody was vomiting and sick and and it just kind of went from bad to worse you know and but he somehow managed to line up all these uh celebrities who had who were 
had or were former celebrities who were hanging around, and Johnny Weissmuller was one of them. So we have one scene with him in there, and I can't remember who the others are, but oh yeah, Henny Youngman, right, right. I guess it was fun, and then they 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 just edited it and they put in some nude footage or something. But so it's not really like my movie. I mean, it's I don't know what they did to it. Some of it's mine, but there's stuff in it that I had nothing to do with. So that vanished and resurfaced. Nothing, nothing stays hidden, Mike. <laughs> Remember that. Mr. Ormsby, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, Mike. Nice talking to you. And last but not least, the return of Clifty Young, who played Agent Lipton in FX. Bob Mandel emailed me yesterday and had said you had a good conversation with him. Yeah, he was such a nice guy. That was great. He is a good guy. We've been friends forever. Well, in fact, since Independence Day, I guess. So, yeah, where were you kind of in your career path at that point? Independence Day, I don't know, uh, a lot of a lot of TV in the 70s. And a couple of movies, Blue Collar and this and that. But no, I just went. Bob had seen me on the stage. I was doing a lot of theater and and asked me to come in for uh, Independence Day. You were also kind of a, well, not the nicest of guys when you were Martin Lipton in FX. No, no, I wasn't. And, you know, I just saw it the other day. I hadn't seen it in a long time. and, And I thought, man, that really works. That was good stuff. I. You usually see these things and you have, as an older actor, you have stabs of regret because I could have done that better. And, you know, that, ah, that didn't work. Well, I got a nice idea now that I could have done then, but, of course, I can't do that. I didn't have that too much with FX because I thought everybody was really on their game and was and was playing it well, and it all kind of worked for me. And you're kind of the linchpin there because not too many – characters get together in that movie. There's only like that one scene of Brian Dennehy and Brian Brown, but you're there in the middle getting to to work with all those guys. Yeah, it was, it was really fun. And you know, New York and you're you're there for six weeks and you're going to the theater and having dinners and then getting up and working in the morning. It was a great experience. I think we all had a, a really good time. And Diana Venora, I had just seen her in, she played Hamlet, a breeches part, you know, woman playing the Hamlet. And she was wonderful. This was a really wonderful actress. It still is, I'm sure. Brian Brown comes from a totally different world, almost literally, than you do. What was it like working with him? Well, I, I, I get along with Aussies very well. We we got on great. And uh, he lived here in Los Angeles for a while till he moved back to Australia. And we got together a lot. I, I I liked him immensely, and uh, which was kind of a problem because, because in the movie, you know, we were antagonists, and I had a tough time being antagonistic toward Brian because he's a good guy. Well, other than Mason Adams, you're kind of antagonistic with everybody. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I, I don't. It, it was, but there were some good moments in that movie. And, and why are we even talking about this movie? Have you have you brought it up? Has it been on or something? 
I mean, it seems like a long time ago. Or is that your thing, isn't it? Movies from a long time ago. Ah. That is definitely my thing. Good for you. I'm glad. But I like the scene where she gets shot through the window. It was so shocking. Diana Venora standing by the window. Bang. I Even still now, I'm, I went, oh, yeah. I like the scene where I, where I walked in and he pulled the gun on me and then I pulled the gun on him. Again, I went, oh, that was kind of cool. There was a lot of really nice bits in there. Yeah, I love the way that you change from that kind of wide-eyed, well, actually kind of more salty Hollywood type to wide-eyed special agent. It's kind of a weird transition. <laughs> it was fun. It was really fun, wasn't it? I used to study with a with a very great acting teacher in New York called Uta Hagen. She's written a book called Respect for Acting, and you know it's kind of a lot of people's bibles. And uh, when we were in New York, you know, if you've if you've studied with her before, you can drop in on a class and and just hang out and watch people work and stuff. So when I was there, I dropped in on one of her classes while we were doing FX, and she said, "Oh yeah, it's nice to see you. What are you doing?" And, pro- and I said, "Well, I do have a problem." To my to the acting teacher Uta Hagen, I said, you know, I'm an anta- I'm really an a- antagonistic with this guy and Brian Brown, but he's such a nice guy, you know. I'm having a hard time, you know, getting it up to hate this guy and to really want to. Sh- and she she paused for a moment and she said, "Well, he's the lead, isn't he?" And I said, "Yeah, he is." And and, and you're supporting. I said, "Yes, I am." She said, "Well, why the hell aren't you the lead?" And I said, God damn it, you're right. Why the hell aren't I the so so she got my whole antagonistic thing going in a, you know, kind of uh actors kind of a way. So it turned out that there was a way to find to dislike Brian in kind of a you know, method methody way, but it helped. Had you worked with uh Jerry Orbach or Brian Dennehy before? No, I, I worked with Brian Dennehy. There used to be a show called uh, the Fairy Tale Theater, Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater, and there was one about Annie Oakley, and he and I were in that. He was Wild Bill, and I was Annie Oakley's husband, and we hang, hung out there, and it was great. And uh, again, these you know, this was a great cast. And when we were there, Jerry Orbach was doing a Broadway play. Damn Yankees! No, whatever. We went to. I remember we went to see him and and uh, a musical guy. And I didn't know. I didn't know he was in the original company of Fantastics. You know, fifty years ago or something. That has been running ever since. Jerry Orbach. It is. It is funny, isn't it? As the as the tough guy gangster dude or the cop on TV. Or the uh, the loving father in Dirty Dancing, I think, was the first time I remember yeah, seeing him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was a wonderful cast, and uh, and a lot of them are, <laughs> as Bob reminded me, a lot of them are dead now. The, the great cinematographer, he's a Polish guy. He did another film with Bob Mandel, I think. Uh, Mirosz Andrzejczyk, his name is. Wonderful, wonderful guy, and Jerry. Or Bach and Mason Adams, I think, and you know, yeah, Mason Adams. He was he was so great, and I love that he's such a a lovable guy. But then when you find out what he a is. shit he is, it's just like yeah, it's a it's great, great. Twist. And he's got that lovely voice from the Civil War voiceover thing, you know. Oh, he had a great voice. Now, I know you've been in stuff like you know Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, where special effects are you know de rigueur, especially these days. 
had you been in an FX heavy movie like that before FX itself? There was one called uh, Master of the Game with Diane Keaton, a TV, you know, a miniseries. We used to do miniseries where you do three or four episodes and, you know, um, and so I, I aged to be about 80. And so they had all that stuff on my face. But but Deep Space Nine, you know, was great. I got to be transported, and that's that was cool. Were you a fan of the old Star Trek? Yeah, I saw I saw it after it had been on for the first time, and and I liked it a lot. Yeah, they were great. So it was nice to show up and do all that running around and the outfits and stuff. Yeah, it is interesting uh, in the age before CGI and all that stuff where you sort of had to have a story and it had to make sense and the actors had to carry the load. You know, even though there was special effects in this one that were pretty cool, that, uh, you know, it was the actors that kept you interested. And uh, and there was some bad, Brian Dennehy and Joe Grafasi, his sidekick. They were great friends. I think Brian got him the job, and uh, they were pals, and it really showed you know, their affection for each other. Bob Mandel told me that he, you were almost an inspiration to the other actors because he would suggest things to actors, and you would jump in and say, oh, I can try that, and kind of almost oh. like a game of one-upmanship with your fellow crew. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think that is true. I'm glad to hear that because Bob is not – not a complimentary type. He just wants to get on with it, which is what I like to do too. But he's so inventive, Robert Mandel, that somehow, and I think that's why we worked together so much. We did like four movies and a couple of TV things, is that all his ideas strike a chord in my head and I know how to play them. You know, that's what a good director is supposed to do. He not just make up ideas and, and sound off like he's a real smart guy, but he's supposed to talk to you in the idea of something that you can play. And and, he, and all of his ideas seemed like I could play. It's exciting to have a guy there actually telling you something. Usually in TV, they just turn you loose and hope you come up with something. So having a director that uh, that actually is helpful, you say, damn, let's go, man. And Bob, it was always that way. We did four. We did Independence Day, FX, The Substitute, and we did some TV movie up in Vancouver with Mia Farrow and then a couple of practices, you know, the, the show, the practice and a few other things. Oh yeah. Know. You were even in the original X-Files. And, oh, that's the other thing. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, he, I did a bit in the original X-Files. Yeah. Uh, we, we've been around and, uh, we spent a lot of Thanksgivings over at their house with the families. You were in one that comes up all the time, uh, and it seems to still have legs today, uh, maybe even more than it did back in 1996 when it came out, which was The Craft. The Craft? Boy, my daughter got a lot of, uh, she got a lot of credit for that one because everybody in high school, in her school, you know, watched that show. Oh, no, oh man, your dad, he was this thing, yes, yes. And so, yeah, The Craft, and I think they're coming out with a new one now. Somebody called me to ask me about that I know nothing about it, uh, but they were making a new one. Now I'm going to tell you all that my daughter, all that she got from this, <laughs> is uh, Black History Month. They showed Glory in high school every February, so there would uh, you know then all the kids would have to come up and say, "Man, your dad shot that guy. That was cool." I mean, 
So every once in a while, you know, you get a little, uh, you get a little bump to the daughter, and then she comes home and says, "Oh yeah, that's what you do." How was it playing Natty Bumpo in the Leather Stocking Tales? It was great. Pittsburgh in the eighties, and uh, uh, they had a uh, and. Uh, uh, it was the same company that did Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and they had, you know, they were doing uh, novels, uh, novelizations, or what do you call it, dramatizations of novels. And it was great because I was in shape and ran around the forest with my breeches and and chingachgook and stuff. The thing I remember about that is that we were in the studio, and the guy said. You know, Mr. Rogers is right next door. You want to go meet him? And I said, oh, no, man. You know, he's like a kid's guy. I don't I have no interest. In and now I wish I would have walked next door and met Mr. Rogers. Did you see that documentary on him? I did. And it was great, you know. And I feel bad that I felt too superior of an actor to go and meet the great Mr. Rogers. But, you know, you're young and arrogant and you don't know who the hell you're talking to half the time. I think last time we talked was right around the time when Road to Nowhere was getting around. Uh, what have you been up to lately? Yeah, lately, uh, Wild. We did a, a film called Wild with Reese Witherspoon. That was fun. Up in in Oregon. And uh, just uh, getting older. Celebrating the the gentle loss of ambition. You're, you're, once you're an actor, you're always an actor and you're always trying to figure out how to make things good. But some things they offer you, you look at and you can't figure out how to make them good. So you have to decline, you know, but every once in a while, there's a good thing. And the, there was, you know, there was a couple of nice few scenes with Reese Witherspoon up there in Oregon on the wild, which I was very happy about. And it turned out well, and she got nominated. So God bless her. Yeah, that was such a beautiful film. It was beautiful. That was how I described it, actually. It was a beautiful little film. Mr. DeYoung, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, thanks, Mike. And uh, and I'm glad you talked to Bob yesterday because he's, uh, he's a good guy. And, and I'm glad you liked the movie because now that you called us both, and then we both had to go watch it again. And, we, uh, and I was really uh, happy that we did. Yeah, no, and it holds up. That's the thing. I just watched it again over the weekend, and I was like, "Is this as good as yeah. I remember?" Yep, it is. Yeah, that same, same, same here. So, uh, all the best, Mike, and I'll be listening to the projection booth. All right, thank you so much, sir. You have a good rest of the day. He was the movie's number one special effects man. Now he's retired. My kid says you can create any illusion you want to. But a special request. You want to bait a trap, make him think that the girl is alone, except it won't be the girl, it'll be me. Has got him rocking with the punches. Rolling into danger. You'll be in and out of the place before you even break a sweat. I need a miracle working on the fix, man. With guys There's someone else in the room Who don't like him Hanging around Hey, Rally Are you gonna hang around here all night? Great bloody timing, Leo Rally and Leo Together again Let's get one thing straight McCarthy and I were never pals For what could be the last time leave this to NYPD. Because somebody else in the department could be involved in this thing. So what do we do now? First we have another drink. 
they have a very strange effect on each other. Five years I waited, I finally got you. And a very special effect. On everyone else. Gotcha. You're going the wrong way! Brian Brown, Brian Dennehy. Nobody does them better. FX2. He's messy. But he's fun at parties. All right, we're back and we're talking about FX. So sequels come in all shapes and sizes and may appear a year after the initial release or decades later. With FX, the sequel came five years later and a TV series five years after that. So I thought it was very smart that they got Richard Franklin to direct the second FX movie. Franklin, who was very into the idea of Hitchcock, his movie Road Games is probably one of my favorite suspense thrillers also set in australia so we've got kind of another australian connection there and then i thought the addition of rachel ticotten and kevin j o'connor who i always love to see in stuff i thought that was a nice addition to the cast but i can't say that i enjoyed fx2 nearly as much as i liked fx1 it seemed much more like a comedy to me with the uh like the extended uh clown fight sequence and and things like that which was great but uh would have seemed a lot more out of place, I think, in, in FX. It seems like they just got more, obviously a larger budget, and so they put it into, I think it was misused, frankly, because it seems like they, they, they just drew more attention to the unlikelihood that this could actually be a special effect. I mean, the clown especially, my God, I mean, it looked just, uh, there was obviously some poor actor inside that clown outfit, and that clown doll, whatever it's supposed to be, it was, it was horrible. It was just made them look all. St- I don't know why the act, why Brian Brown, <laughs> they put up with having to to do that, but uh, uh, you know, uh, it was it was unfortunate, an unfortunate choice. The murder and then the plot and the cover up and all of that just seemed so super elaborate that I wasn't even necessarily buying it at the end when it ended up being about what like coins stolen from the Vatican, and I was like, well, how does that medallions? Medallions, yeah. And it just feels like way too much to have going on. I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm okay with like kind of labyrinthine plots, but this one just didn't necessarily all add up a hundred percent for me. Yeah, it was way too elaborate to kill the cop at the beginning to the whole sting operation, things like that it was, <laughs> but you know, again, it was about distracting you, creating an illusion, things like that. And they didn't hold up near as well, but, uh, they kept distracting you. I mean, the only really good thing I can say about this is at least we have interaction between Brian Brown and Brian Dennehy and that they are more of a team in this movie, um, even though they kind of go off on their own at times. And I was really bummed that Velez was knocked off. I thought that was the most horrible thing in this movie because I really liked her from the first film. And I was so glad when she showed up in the second film, she's the only other than the two Brian's, she's the only one that comes back. And then her murder is so sudden. I mean, again, I guess you're right, Jed, they kept me off, you know, on my toes with this. And I was really bummed to see her go. I was waiting for her to go back to Jamaica. Yeah, it yeah. Seems like she's got a history of doing that. She goes to Jamaica with a lot of, a lot of cops, a lot of FBI guys. That's a spinoff. 
Jamaica Diaries or something. Salmon King maybe did that. Or it's uh, that, what, Death in Paradise, that uh, show from the BBC, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I found really nice was that, you know, there's this whole idea of this, I mean, God, talk about an elaborate setup again. So Brian Brown is going out with Rachel Ticotten, and she is formerly married to this cop, and those two have a kid together, and then the cop... Tom Mason, the actor Tom Mason, another Mason in the movie. Yes, so. yes. Got to keep our Masons. Yeah, we didn't really point out that uh, Mason Adams played a character named Colonel Mason. I don't know if that was uh, intentional or not, but we were just happened to be cast in that role or if they changed the name for him but yeah it's kind of strange hopefully it wasn't one of those things where he couldn't remember his character's name so they just called him by his own name he was in advanced stages of alzheimer's by then and that they just worked 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 around it as best they could just call him by his name can and can i point out i forgot to how odd as i was looking at the uh the background scenery and, and the the set dressing how odd is uh, Colonel Mason's office. It's decorated with like flower vases and uh, glass encased horse sculptures, uh, little figurines, and he's got uh, like an antique radio and a, a like a jar of jelly beans sitting on his desk, an open jar of jelly beans that you're supposed to feel welcome to just help yourself to, I guess, but. This is a very strange set dressing for Department of Justice hard ass uh, to have. I'm telling you, it was the. I'm telling you, it was the dementia. Yeah, well, I was gonna say it looked like my grandmother's house. Like it really did. Maybe, maybe they just went to his house and called him by his name so he'd answer. And I don't know. Do you think those jelly beans were a nod to Ronald Reagan and the dementia? Are you, but you have to get to the big shower scene because there is, um, you know, the fake shower scene. Oh, God. That takes forever. That just goes on forever. And the steam and, and this thing with the steam. And it was just so uh, silly. But it was another nod to um, maybe Hitchcock or Brian De Palma or both of them, maybe. I don't know. But they were, or they're trying to, this is, they had to have. Yeah. with she, she And that actor, that actress looked right, right, right out of the De Palma casting, you know, book, whatever you want to call it. It'd be a weird place to have a window, too. My shower's got a window on the side, but that window, you know, the way they had it set up, you'd have been just looking straight into the... You face the faucet or you face the window. I just didn't get that whole thing as far as the guy across the way. Like, they knew that he was going to come over and murder this woman. Like, had I, I don't even understand how that all worked. Logic was not in great supply in either of these movies, to be honest. Oh, I was going to say, though, that the one thing that I liked is that Tom Mason, when he's at this safe house uh, later on in the film, I guess it's uh, Rachel Ticotten's, uh sister's char character's uh, place, that they're watching the original FX or the movie that was inside of FX on the TV in the background. I thought that was kind of a nice nod. It is. I missed that. Yeah, if you look over his sh shoulder when he's on the on the phone and they're having that, uh, can you get to a computer uh, discussion? The casting of the son, the uh, Tom Mason, and uh, uh, you know, the little boy who is—it was not. I also kind of a 
I guess at the time they were using very precocious, obnoxious child actors. And probably this kid really was a refreshing change of pace because if you see any of those other movies, they're almost unwatchable because of the, they, for a while, this was like, a virus or something that was going on in Hollywood where they would just cast the most obnoxious child actors possible. At least here, they didn't do that. It's one of the things I can at least compliment FX2 for. Tom Mason's the father character, and Dominic, Dominic Zapro, Zapragna is uh, the child character, so I apologize for that. Well, forgiven. You know, watching these as a, as a teenager, when they came out, I didn't uh, notice and, and wouldn't have had any reason to, but uh, revisiting it uh, this week, I saw a name that really popped out to me was the producer uh, Dodie Fayed, who you know was killed uh, in the car accident with uh, Princess Di. But he was a producer of uh, FX, FX2, and uh, you know, a couple other, couple mm-hmm. other movies, uh, including Chariots of Fire a few years before, but um, very, very strange little connection there, I thought. Mm, I could. I remembered. I was like, "Why is that name so familiar?" And I forgot to look it up. Normally, I would have looked it up. But that's that's amazing. And cousin to uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, the journalist uh, just killed. Oh wow! I think the Rothschilds were behind it. I took the red pill, dude. I'll make a YouTube video all about it. <laughs> I will wait for it. You know, I talked about how I was surprised at times with the first one. I forgot that Jerry Orbach was still alive. So when he shows up, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. He's still around and he's here and Leo hears him on the phone. With FX2, all of the beats really telegraph themselves so much before they happen. And you can just see everything as it's going to occur, especially at the end when the one female, I guess she's the associate DA, uh, that she ends up being a bad guy. And when this burning corpse, to go back to the first movie, this burning corpse comes flying into the room, I was like, oh, well, there's Raleigh right there. I mean, it, it plays too similar to the first one. And also just we have we see all these things coming, or at least I felt that way. It's lazy. and But yeah, again, I'm going to give context. It's 1980, mid-80s, and again, the uh, the whole sequel, uh, you know, idea of, of – of, this was the very beginning, like, of the 80s in Hollywood of uh, just making sequels of any successful movie. This They didn't even think, oh, we should put thought into this. This is just going to make money. You know, who cares how much and who cares how, how good it is? I, I honestly just think – this was like the latest thing to do was to make a sequel if you had a hit movie. At least they were still making some original, original, you know, movies to make sequels for. <laughs> you know, but that's my feeling about it. I think the sequel was still so new it wasn't being even scrutinized yet as a, in a cynical way that, you know, happened obviously at certain point when there were just so many FX2s coming out every year that people just, you know, got sick of that. Well, it was weird that it came out five years after the first film came out. You know, even with like Star Wars, it was every three years that a new one came out for a while there. And I don't remember the lag time between like a Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 2, or Die Hard, a Die Hard 2, but it seemed like it was a lot closer than five years for those. Yeah, it was two or three with those. So by this time, it felt like all the heat might have been off. It could have been that phenomenon of this got popular again on vhs and but even then i think vhs was you know more like 
stuff was getting popular in 88, 89, and then we'll make this sequel right away. But yeah, it just felt like it was a little too late and not good enough to really follow in the first one's footsteps. I still, I'm sure it did very well in the box office, right? I haven't looked. I'm sure you did, Mike. But I would say, well, first of all, it probably took that long for him to get his work permit, you know, maybe status. Who knows? But or Brian, you know, but no, no, I, I mean, I think uh, I just think that it was only maybe it still took a few more years until producers were already thinking, well, we're going to make be ready with the sequel even before the success of the first one. You know, they just had whenever uh, there was a formula, they just figured we'll make the sequels and it was all plotted out. But that took a little while. You know, uh, I, I just feel like. Probably by the '90s, that was a thing. But I think in the '80s, they hadn't figured that that formula out quite yet. So it just took a little longer. I mean, I think there was more space in between most of the sequels. Remember Star Wars, which was maybe an early, you know, big sequel thing, right? That that had that was already a series of of, of nine stories plotted out by Lucas. But here's a case where that you know they didn't they didn't really have that. Yeah, I still call bullshit on that. I don't think that he had any of that shit planned out personally. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, what do you, you? How many? How long was it between Alien and Aliens, for instance? That was seventy nine to eighty six, I think. See, yeah. see, I don't think it was so unusual that sequels were a number of years apart because it wasn't planned from the beginning. I don't think there was any idea of a cinematic universe when it came to that thing. And I'm tr- curious because I want to say like Predator came out right around the same time, and I'm curious how many years between Predator and Predator Two. It was about five years, I think. It okay. was about 87 and 92, I think. Because that feels like it's really the analog when it comes to this because of the whole idea. Not that this was such a departure like Predator 2 was, but the whole idea of we have this property that was unexpectedly successful. We should revisit it, but it's going to take us a little while before we get back to it. And at least with Predator 2, it was such a departure. With this, it felt more like a, a retread of a lot of the same ideas. Maybe they were really expecting Brian Dennehy to have, or Brian Brown to have a, you know, a huge jump in, in status and didn't really pan out, you know, uh, blame it on the bellboy didn't catch fire. They thought we'll go ahead and do another sequel, but, uh, Uh, FX two had to done well enough to justify a series. Yeah, though, that's a weird thing too. That whole idea of what is popular enough to make a series out of, I mean, that they made, and this is before the one that just happened recently, but that they made that weird series from Fargo with Kathy Bates. It's like, well, what's going on here? Yeah, it's it's such a crapshoot when it comes to we're going to make a, a TV series out of this this movie. I mean, you know, Alice. Okay, Mash. All right. I mean, Alice, the TV show. Who saw that coming out of Alice? Doesn't live here anymore. I mean, just bizarro. Yeah, you know, but sometimes it sticks. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. Seemed, yeah. In other words, it seems a little arbitrary. Maybe Tom Cruise, who was famous for, in his first breakout hit for doing a uh, scene, very famous movie scene in Tidy Whities. Maybe it was this big elaborate thing where plot where. He, uh, Brian Brown now does it in effects where he has this, you know, he looks great and even better than Tom Cruise possibly. So Tom Cruise thinks I'm going to put him in cocktail and destroy his career. So he never does that again. It's just a theory. Yeah. And then, uh, I'm going to steal his best, his best movie and, uh, spend, you know, a good 
part of the rest of my career ripping rubber masks off of my head. Oh, my God. What did you think of the series, Adam? Uh, Honestly, I could not stomach it after I just turned it off very quickly. Uh, I just thought it was really uh, silly. And I mean, again, I I, I was so soon, so maybe I I didn't give it enough of an opportunity. What's the actor's name again from, uh, what's her name? I'm forgetting, the Australian actor from, uh, who's in the, at least initially, and maybe she's just in the first episode, but she's, uh, shit, you know. Carrie Ann Moss. Thank you, thank you. Um, uh, Yeah. Was she in uh, subsequent episodes? I think she was, which was surprising, because I thought that she would be a one-and-done watching her character. So I was glad to see her in it. That's, that was enough to make me want to see it. But the, it was very hard to the, – the version I was watching on YouTube wasn't very, uh, you know, wasn't high quality and um, or, or even bad quality. It was worse. But it just seemed very cheesy, very, like, again, very much 90, 90s TV effects or whatever. I don't know. What did you think? Well, I found it interesting that in that first movie, and you were just talking about Mission Impossible, that oh, – sorry, the first TV episode – that they make a mask for Carrie Ann Moss and that they have this big tub of stuff. It kind of almost reminded me of dark man, but this big tub of stuff. And then they are like using this computer technology in order to make this mask for her. And I was like, wow, this feels like it's right out of mission impossible, but only to find out the mission impossible one was 96. And this came out, well, did this come out in, 96, I was right there with Mission Impossible. So, you know, it was kind of weird. I don't understand why the Raleigh character had to be Australian, and they even got another Australian actor to play him, uh, this Cameron Dado guy. Um, but okay, whatever, that's fine. The guy that played, uh, Leo, I was not a big fan of his performance. And yeah, it was silly is definitely the right way to describe this. It kind of reminds me of like the new MacGyver. And I guess just because he is kind of like MacGyver, but instead of like common household items, well, even then, I guess common household items, like the way that Raleigh in the movie was using hairspray cans to defeat uh, the criminal in the second film. And it's kind of very MacGyver-esque. And then in the the TV series is very similar. Like, oh, I have this stick of bubble gum. I'll make a fake nose or something. So it just all felt like it was like Mission Impossible meets MacGyver. Yeah, big tip off that things are going off the rails uh, with the sequel with FX2 is uh, on the poster, Brian Brown's got a gun. Like, yeah, no, that guy, you know, he, he, he should have, like you said, a can of hairspray or something like that. He's It's not that kind of movie. It's not that kind of character. It totally reminded me of the uh, Lethal Weapon 2 poster. Which they also made into a series, right? It's a series now, isn't it? Lethal Weapon is a series now, yeah. But as far as the the two characters and the big gun and stuff, I don't know. It it also reminded me a little bit of the um, one of the Dirty Harry posters where he's got the big gun. Yeah, yeah, that's it looked like a Dirty Harry kind of thing. And yeah, that's totally, I mean, unless that's Leo's hand, but I don't think so. I think the series could work now because I think, you know, uh, obviously there's just such a need for, you know, a content that's also has already a built in recognizability and a brand to it, you know, but it is it would be great to do a series now. And I would bring Brian Brown to do it, frankly. Well, that's the thing I'm curious about is how many people who are younger than us 
remember FX? You know, if I talk to my 25 year old coworkers, are they going to know what FX the movie is? Before or after or... this, before or after this episode drops. Oh, yeah. Well, after, I mean, that'll set the whole internet on fire. There'll be BuzzFeed articles, all kinds of stuff about FX and how important it was. But beforehand, before this article, this issue drops, how aware of this movie are they? I don't know. I, I, I don't think they're aware at all. Don't think they're aware at all. But you do bring up a good point about now being a good time for the series because movie effects are so different now than they were. I think it would be really appealing to see a lot of practical effects created in TV and, and you know, created in the in the plot lines to uh, to play in in real life. So uh, I think I think that'd be a cool maybe a, maybe this is the time for another FX uh, TV series reboot. Sure, and and you know what was the name of the kid from the second movie? His his that he was sort of the uh, you know sort of the stepdad for. I think it was Chris, Chris Brandon. Right. So he would be now an adult and he would be the main character. And then Brian Brown is sort of the, like a secondary character now who's, you know, maybe comes out of retirement. Oh, the older mentor, the wise Yoda character. Well, he did raise him. You at least hope he didn't just like (laughs) abandon that family after FX two story ends. He's off with Brian. He's off with Leo again, Raleigh and Leo, you know, for moving on to their next adventure. In Jamaica, wherever they honeymooned, you know. But I, I, I'm just setting up the premise for the the new series. I like it. The TV show kind of reminded me of well, like I said, it reminded me of the new MacGyver that's out there. It reminded me of a lot of other shows, and they all had that same kind of mix of the different characters. You know, it kind of. I mean, you look at um show like bull or um human target from a few years ago they all kind of have that same mix and this show definitely had that and then they even switched it up by the time the second season came leo was gone and they ended up giving his stuff to another character so it it was really strange that the leo and raleigh relationship is over by the end of the second season i think the first episode of the second season he's investigating leo's death so Kevin Dobson was only on there for 22 episodes, whereas Cameron Dado was on there for 39. So I'm not sure how many episodes per season there was, but I think the second one was a little shorter than the first one. Kevin Dobson, the uh, he's he played Leo. No, yeah. Oh, he did. Mm-hmm. Wow. Kev, the same Kevin Dobson from Kojak fame. Yes, exactly the same one. And talk about even a more obscure reference to your audience. <laughs> well, they all remember the Ving Rhames show with uh, Kojak. <laughs> Sorry, that lasted, what, one episode, maybe two? Wait, say what happened? There was a Kojak reboot that happened a there few was? years ago. Oh, no way. Yeah. It was right around the time that they rebooted Ironside, I think, with uh, uh, the guy from L.A. Law. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, good stuff. That, that's what's going on now. It's this idea. It's already built in brands. TV series can kind of take an existing idea that has a loose sort of uh, nostalgic a connection to audiences. It doesn't matter. I think that's why I think in effects now, even though nobody's seen it, nobody in this current generation has seen it, but they'll, they know the reference. I mean, I, I, maybe they don't even know that, but it's, it seems like it's just something like that could do better now than it did back in the mid-90s. 
Well, I'm curious, like, well, you're, you're talking about this and there's like Hawaii Five O and Magnum PI. Yeah, it's weird how these things come in cycles. Maybe it's also because of this, like, um, TV shows especially have at least they have the nostalgic cable stations, you know, that, that there's an enormous audiences that are watching TV land and those other, you know, knockoffs, right? So those shows never went off the air, really. To make sure that I correct myself, Kojak with Ving Rames came out in 2005, lasted for nine episodes, and Ironside with Blair Underwood came out in 2013, but for some reason I had them both coming out right around the same time. That also lasted for nine episodes. But not aware of either. And and my appearances on your podcast will probably last, well, let's face it, it won't even last half that many times. Keep talking about those lobsters, and you're guaranteed. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. If my pops finds out I got in trouble in school today, I'm definitely going to be on punishment. Ah! Uh, there's a party tonight at Peter's house. Can I go? You're not going nowhere. Every little step you take will be around this bedroom tonight. Did you hear anything about a party tonight? Uh-uh. At least not any good ones. Hello to Wafa. Do I feel like being bothered with Tawafa? Hello, LaDonna. Woman, woman, woman. Yo, baby, you looking real good. Step off. Scandalous. Kick it, Pop. <laughs> what you got to say now, punk? How much more trouble can I get into? Prison. Just do me a favor. Don't pick up the soap with that fire. I'm, I'm going to kill it. Yo, y'all, look who fell into the gig. Hey, this ain't so pain. The two finest women in here. Now, how could a man choose? And he better choose right. Okay, so where we're on our way to? The house party. What? The house party. Jay ain't going to that damn party. That's all to it. I don't give a damn what you say. You're making me a social misfit. That's right. We'll be back next week with the discussion of House Party. Until then, I want to thank this week's guests, Adam and Jedediah. Jedediah, what is the latest with you, sir? I got a piece on uh, Daily Grindhouse uh, uh, about uh, the films of Andy Sedaris. Go read that. That's fun. Yeah, thanks. It was a good excuse to go back and watch. I watched 15 movies in three days. Holy shit. Yeah, there's a lot of tits, man. There's a lot. And Adam, what's uh, what's the latest with you over at Filmax Radio? I'm kind of doing the podcast I always wanted to do right now, so I'm very excited about it. I hope people give it a listen, uh, dip into some episodes, a lot of different guests on there that you might uh, really dig, and uh, that's the main thing, I guess. Um, I am writing a screenplay, though, that is nearing its completion, which I'm very excited about as well, and I hope that we'll get this sucker made. And please don't go by this, my lobster fascination as a any kind of... Uh, indication that of what i can do you an australian accent is what i want to yeah i do sometimes employ accents but uh i was really was tempted to do an australian accent the entire time i'm glad your better judgment won out i don't know jury's out on that (laughs) should adam have used an australian accent or not on this entire episode hashtag adam aussie yes or hashtag adam aussie no be sure to tweet out your responses by the end of this week it's the only accent that I do where actual Australians will say, you know, that's a bloody good accent.
Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.